Wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, and whoever staggers because of them is not wise. Proverbs 21. Welcome back to the Go to Hell podcast. Strong opinions weekly held about Christianity, the church, and beer. I'm your host, Tim Curley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Colton Pierce. Colton, how's it hanging? It's hanging well. Um, we are one week away from... One week from tonight, I will be on Thanksgiving break, which will be nice. So, And it's just a couple of days. Like We get Wednesday off, uh, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday. So, um, But we are at a total of 19 school days left until uh kids are out so I'm not usually a counting down kind of person but i've got seniors this year and so they keep asking like how many days left how many days left so um it's just how it goes so uh i've got the number down uh and they are keeping me counting um i will say um we're starting off with the swear words early but fuck private catholic schools in our area <laughs> Um, that's all I have to say about that. How are you, Tim? I think that's most people's opinion. If they go to a public school, once they get to the playoffs, it's fuck the Catholic schools. Fuck the recruiting Catholic schools in our area. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure they're good. I'm sure they're good schools. I'm just, I, I, yeah, screw them. Yeah, I'm doing well. You and I had a really nice weekend. Uh, yeah. Spent Saturday going up to Fresno to see uh, girls and boys school, uh, water polo teams from high school here in town. Unfortunately, lose in their championship games, and both of them, both of them, the boys was more heartbreaking than the girls. But even the girls was they were. The fact that they were in that game as long as they were with a powerhouse was yeah, itself 100%. heartbreaking, and they were pretty in it until the very end, and then all of a sudden, I think the faster swimmers, the more stamina and all that kicked in, and the girls kind of collapsed, but they were in it, actually, surprisingly, for two-thirds, three-quarters of that match that I didn't expect, so... Right. Um Both heartbreaking losses, and even though I don't have any kids, my kids... My, my son went to that same high school, played water polo for the coach who's still the coach. And so I was there partially because um, I do enjoy water polo, but I also respect the hell out of the man that coaches that team. He's a he's an outstanding water polo coach, but also just a really good – he's a very quiet mentor. He's not um, – I don't have a problem with coaches who are very overtly about being mentors. Those guys are to be to praise too. Um Dave just goes about it in a very, very quiet manner where you almost don't pick up on the, you don't, if you're a parent, you don't perceive him um, as a mentor. I think it just, he rubs off on the kids. He's not wearing that mentorship on his sleeve. It's very much a quiet leadership role. But he impacts all those boys that come through in a big way. So yeah, and I was can. there to support him, and and then I knew, and then you are coaching water polo still, and our friend Eric is coaching, and 
you guys wanted to see. So my wife was out of town visiting Oklahoma, so gave me something to do instead of being around the house watching college football, which I don't need to be watching. There's I've watched plenty of that in my lifetime. So it was a great day, and then we hit up some breweries, as always. Naturally. Uh, kind of a couple of letdowns on our brewery uh, go through, in my opinion. They were fine. They weren't great. Uh, we went to Machine Head, which we've mentioned on the show before. We enjoyed Machine Head, but for some reason, they were all in on sours. Like, half the menu was sours. They had one West Coast IPA, which was, eh, it wasn't great. And then a bunch of hazies, and the hazies were good. We're drinking one right now. And then we went to the second place, which I'd never been to. I'd sampled some of their beers uh, at either a restaurant in Visalia or maybe, I don't think I've ever bought anything and brought it home. But there's called Crow and Wolf. Uh, they're relatively new. Big oper- Both places have big operations for how new they are. Crow and Wolf was pretty good. Um, I had better- Actually, the red IPA that I had at the end yeah. was phenomenal. What they had that I wish they had in cans, I would have taken every can they had home, was this English ale that was 3.3% and had all the flavor of a fully alcohol, like a 5% beer. Um, It was amazing. Um, But the West Coast that I had was meh. It was was meh, but it was better than the one at... at, uh, uh, where were we at? Not Hop Forge. Uh, no, where were we at before that? Machine Head. Machine Head. Yeah, I was like, eh. And then also we had had. Oh, uh, Mad Duck was a disappointment. Yeah, Mad Duck was. The a food disappointment. was pretty good. The food was okay. It was okay. Uh, but the IPA we had lacked flavor completely. Yeah, one hundred percent. It was the second beer I had was a. What did I have? That one you had was the much pale better. Ale. Pale ale was much better. The pale ale had a lot of flavor. I enjoyed that. Um, I actually enjoyed that one, but. Uh, you refrained from a second beer because you were driving. Um, I don't think that was the reason why. I you think it was just, it, we were just on time. Like it, the, the big gag is Colton takes a long time to finish his beers. But I mean, like also, <laughs> like I was feeding a baby you as well for like true. a bit. You like it was like baby. I was like, ah, I can't really like chance it or anything. But we had the fair Audrey and baby with us. So, um, so anyway, good day, good day with friends. Yeah, great day with friends and beer. Weather um, was nice. Weather was great. Uh, it was actually warmer than I expected, so I was schlepping around a jacket for most of the day while getting baked by the sun. But it wasn't like super hot. It was you just could have just tossed it in the stroller, bro. It's, it's true. It, it was just uh, supposed to be like sixty-five, and it felt like eighty in the sun. But it yes, was, it, it was it was pleasant though. Very nice, and then it cooled down nicely once we uh, got to the evening. So, uh, so you know, life's good. Good. And what are we drinking again from? Uh, we're drinking a Machine Head brew uh, that is a collab with Humble Sea. Now, we have not given a lot of love to Humble Sea. We say that their flavor profile pretty much tastes the same every single time you drink it. Um, but I will say that this one, I'm not really getting that flavor profile. Maybe it's because they stepped it up to a double IPA and it's uh, the depth metal is what it's called. Pure dankness is their catchphrase, and it's their third anniversary collaboration because uh, Machine Head just hit their third anniversary uh, this year, uh, and we were there for that party, I guess, unintentionally. Yeah. Uh, its hot blend is uh, 
Mutika in Strata, and it's 8.2% alcohol by volume, and it's pretty tasty. Oh, and it's Nectarin and Waimea hops. So, it looks like a screwdriver. If you if you've ever had a drink a cocktail, screwdriver. it looks like a humble C IPA. <laughs> All right, and so what are we listening to? Oh, I have a fun one for you on how I've gotten to what I've been listening to. So, uh. So on Friday, which we're going to talk about tonight, we had movie night and uh, we watched our second movie, which we're not going to talk about tonight, although we might mention it. Uh, we watched Old Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. And my favorite song on Old Brother, Where Art Thou? is Big Rock Candy Mountain. <laughs> I love that song. Uh, but so that got me on like a little like a little tinge so i was like okay i want to listen to uh and there was i'll fly away on that album so my favorite rendition of i'll fly away is by george jones because george jones sings the greatest uh um gospel album of all time in my opinion i love george jones singing gospel music uh and so listen to george jones a lot this week or this weekend um, and Monday, uh, playing the gospel music, uh, his gospel album. And then my wife was like, uh, we were talking, she's like, can we do more modern uh, Christian music? <laughs> I was offended. But so I ended up playing Creed, uh, Creed's greatest hits, because uh, <laughs> that's not more modern, by the way. I mean, it's more modern than George Jones's. Although right. his, I think that album came out in 2003, but I mean, it's a compilation of all of his yeah. times that he sang it. But uh, <laughs> but I was listening to Creed's greatest hits this week, so that was pretty fun. I did listen to uh, A Bullet with butterf Butterfly Wings on the way here by Smashing Pumpkins, so there you go. That's also... <laughs> uh something that i listened to <laughs> recently <laughs> so there you go big rock candy mountain uh george jones gospel uh album uh where he just sings a bunch of old hymns uh creed's greatest hits and <laughs> a bullet with butterfly wings by the smashing pumpkins <laughs> How about you, Jim? What are you listening to? Well, before I get to that, you mentioned the music from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, Would yeah. we have... I can't remember the other band that I'm trying to think of. They're Scottish. We had this kind of folk revival come up with like... Would you say Lumineers qualify? They're like a folk kind of band, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, And then the one, the Scottish band, the big one, uh, shoot... I was like, you're not talking about Mumford and Sons. Yes, Mumford and Sons. Oh, they're from Liverpool, I thought. Oh, I thought they're Scottish. Maybe one of them's from Scotland. Anyway, of course they're from Liverpool. Uh, do you think that that kind of hipster revival? Watch, came we're gonna, out this of... is the same thing that we ran into last week, where we're going to say they're from Liverpool and watch they're from Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> give me, give me a sec. Uh... Do we think that that is based off of the Old Brother Where Art? Yeah, did the, did Old Brother Where Art there live to like re re revive, a, well, create a revival that kind of led people to liking that kind of music, or was there already, 
was it coming out of the hipster thing that had already started? I wonder. I don't know the answer. I'm thinking out loud. Um, no, it's, it's, it's a fair question. Um, I mean, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou won several Oscars for its music uh, or awards for, uh, you know, that particular year. Um, it, won gra- it won a Grammy, right? Um, yeah. Uh, they're from London, by the way. Uh, they are. Well, I know the guy who left one of the guitar players is from London because I've heard some of his podcasts and he's definitely speaking with an English accent. I know the difference, but I, I thought maybe the lead singer was from Marcus Mumford. Um, British sing. Well, British doesn't answer that question. Yep. Oh, he's from Wimbledon. Yeah, he's he's like from money. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, oh, he's married to Carrie Mulligan. Interesting. Yeah, I think I don't know what caused. So what's really funny is when they were at their height was actually when I was in high school. Uh, so two thousand. 2010 through 2014 there was this weird kind of area of music i would say where out of nowhere there was bands that were becoming popular and even some of the bands that we consider popular today so like imagine dragons a lot of their songs that were the most popular during that time was like on top of the world um and um what was another one uh oh gosh Man, I why can't I think of this? But basically, there was like this there was this desire for like an acoustic sound um, that was kind of in the in this like four year gap of time where uh, really cool things were able to take place. Where the Lumineers became super popular um, with Stubborn Love and uh, Ho Hey that kind of um, put them on the map, and then uh, Mumford and Sons put two back to back albums out that were that were fire sign yeah. no more and then babel yeah and babel won them grammy or album of the year at the grammys um and so i i honestly i think that that's a fair thing but i, I there was just a desire for for an acoustic sound that i don't know where it came from because i mean like adele and during that time was really popular and her a lot of her stuff was really simple it wasn't using a lot of the electronics. oh i have an answer for that i i think I think that was all what you you said, what, 2012? Somewhere between 2010 through 14. I think by then, we. I think by then, those things need to be looked at, I think, from like a 2,000, a 20,000 20, foot perspective. And I think they're, I think that music and even the whole just hipster movement of dress and... Uh, just the whole hipster culture, I think, is a natural aversion response to the over dig- to the digitalization that was that's going on in society, where people are feeling like they need to get back to some kind of natural root. Sure. And by 2012, we'd had phones. In 10 2012, 
you know, the iPhone basically has become fully saturated and people are dealing with that whole new, like trying to grasp what that means. And I think there's just a lot of like, I want to get back. I want to have some kind of connection to a pre-digital world and, and like nature and then that kind of stuff. And that kind of the whole hipster movement and the, the acoustic movement kind of gives us, gives that kind of feel back to a time before we had all of this digital stuff, uh, overrunning our our lives so well, and what's really fun about this is if you actually like pay attention to trends if you give it about 10 years nashville will follow suit so whatever it is that you are really interested in nashville will like then like as far as pop music goes just give it 10 years and nashville will catch up yeah because uh, that's the i feel like that's the push right now in nashville is like we want to get back to kind of this like root oh yeah that's the kind whole of sound. alternative country right now yeah where it's like oh yeah this is uh, it's just a guy and his guitar and right and this basically and like i think they're even trying to go for a tin can sound like yes. you know on the on the recording and stuff um which you know if that's what you're into 100 that's how it goes i wasn't a big fan of the last 10 years of country music either so um i'm not a huge fan of what's going on right now i just i like original um works and that kind of stuff and i mean you could sit there and say well the lumineers and the and those guys and i was like i wasn't as that much into original works back then you right. know so um but i don't know we'll see where things go so uh but i don't know mm -hmm. i i don't know if that's necessarily a a response to oh brother where art thou i was really young when oh brother where art thou came out i wasn't allowed to watch it until i was in high school so like junior high high school so i pulled it i just had when that movie came out i think it was like six was it 2001 2002 i remember falling asleep in my house and uh, Big Rock Candy Mountain was playing on the TV. 2000, that came out before 9-11. 2000. That's unbelievable. Okay, well, then they didn't have any connection. I mean, For maybe, 10 years down the line. Yeah. Um, well, it's because kids like me were falling asleep to hearing Big Rock Candy Mountain. I mean, oh, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe the Lumineers kids watched that movie as a kid and fell in love with that kind of music. Actually, that's, actually, I'm wrong. You know, maybe there was a group of generation of kids who watched that movie and like that kind of sound and like i didn't even know that existed and started researching and all that kind of stuff so who's right. who's to say um yeah i what i've been listening to is uh very boring and unoriginal i've been listening to rolling stones but Boo. don't apologize so Boo. <laughs> i'm just booing because like I think it's they like, are amazing, particularly once they stopped being the Beatles and I, became themselves. I think this is the third time on this show that Tim has said that he listens to the Rolling Stones every week. Is it? I don't think so. I think it's one. It's like the third time. It must have been like once or twice. Well, they're they're amazing. So, uh, all right. <laughs> no apology needed. So, as Colton said, tonight we are taking a break from the uh, hullabaloo in the world. Yeah, we're done talking about Israel for a week. We'll get back to that next week. <laughs> I, I do have more thoughts, but if we if we brought them up tonight, even as a hot topic, this would be a four-hour podcast. So, instead, we're doing... And you'd be like, please stop beating that yeah. horse. <laughs> Go to hell. 
at the movies. Go to hell goes to the movies. This week we're doing the 1997 Oscar hit Good Will Hunting. Pull up my papers from my currently nicotine-stained hands. Currently nicotine-stained hands. All right, I'm going to read a quick... If you have not watched Goodwill Hunting, either turn the podcast off and go watch it and then listen to our very detailed and very... Uh, oh, uh... In depth, no, that's not the word. Our breakdown of why the movie's amazing. Um, that's not really an eloquent way to say that, but I, the the word escapes me. Um, and if it's been a while since you've seen it, uh, I'm going to give you a breakdown. Just well, I'm just going to do a breakdown so everybody remembers what the movie is about. Who's in it? Uh, So, let's see. All right. Like I said, uh, 1997 movie stars Matt Damon, Robin Williams, Ben Affleck, uh, Minnie Driver, and Stellan Skarsgård with supporting roles by Casey Affleck and Cole Hauser. Uh, yes, that's a rip from Yellowstone. If you Yellowstone uh, viewers out there, it's a young Cole Hauser. Uh, it's directed... By Oscar-nominated writer and director Gus Van Sant, uh, who is a key independent film director in the '80s and '90s, uh, he's also done some uh, some some other movies that are pretty up there with Goodwill Hunting, Drugstore Cowboy, My Own Private Idaho, and one of my favorites, Finding Forrester, which or that would be one to do on the show too, because that one's uh, similar to Goodwill Hunting in a lot of ways. Although, as uh, your friend, our mutual friend Eric. Yes, Eric, that is a teacher movie. It's very much a teacher movie. Um, a movie is written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. It was primarily written by Damon. It was part of a assignment he was given while at college where he's supposed to write a quick, like, one-act play. He wrote, like, a 20-page one-act play tried to turn it into a movie, and then when he moved to Los Angeles, had uh, his best friend Ben clean, uh, clean it up and add to it. And so um, it ended up being them, the two of them collaborating with it. So I'm going to now read from Roger, Roger Ebert's review from 1997. I'm, I, it's not the entire review, but he does a really good job of breaking down what the movie is about. Uh, Goodwill Hunting is the story of this kid's, uh, of how this kid's life edges towards self-destruction and how four people try to haul him back. One is Lambeau, who gets probation for Will with a promise that he'll find him help and counseling. One is Sean McGuire, played by Ron Williams, Lambeau's co uh, college roommate, now a community college professor who messed up his own life but is a gifted counselor. One is Skyler, Minnie Driver, a British student at Harvard who falls in love with Will and tries to help him. And one is Chucky, Ben Affleck, Will's friend since childhood, who tells him, you're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. It would be an insult to us if you're around here in 20 years. True, but Will doesn't see it that way. His reluctance to embrace the opportunity at MIT is based partly on class pride. 
It would be betraying his buddies in the old neighborhood and partly on psychic wounds. And it would it would and it is only through breaking through those scars and sharing some of his own that McGuire, the counselor, is able to help him. Robin Williams gives one of the best performances, one of his best performances as McGuire, especially in a scene where he finally gets the kid to repeat, it's not my fault. Goodwill Hunting perhaps found some of its inspiration in the lives of its makers. The movie was co-written by Damon and Affleck, who grew up in Boston, who were childhood friends and who both took youthful natural talents and used them to find success as actors. It's tempting to find parallels between their lives and the characters, and tempting, too, to watch the scenes between Damon and Driver with the knowledge that they fell in love while making the movie. Here's a character who has four friends who love and want to help him, and he's threatened by their, by their help because it means abandoning all of his old, sick, dysfunctional, defense mechanisms as louis armstrong once said there's some folks that if you don't know you can't tell them this is a movie whether will is one of those folks so i think it's a good summary of what the movie is about without going through like scene by scene what the movie is right so how do you want to go about this i've got you want to just go like scene by scene that you think are important and then break those down or just start by overall by saying, let's start over why we like this this movie. How about that? Why we picked it for the podcast. Because we actually skipped this. We could have done Shawshank, but we decided to do this. Yeah, so... Um, last year, last summer, um, we were at Trivia Night. It was me... Um, Nolan, Eric, Ben, and Tim. We were at Trivia Night, and we were talking about uh, the greatest movies of all time. And Ben and Eric had both said that they had seen movies, but they hadn't seen a lot of them or a lot of what is considered like the classics or um, the award-winning movies. Um and so what we had decided to do was we were going to compile a list. Um, so people are going to write their 25 uh, movies out on a list. Um, and a lot of us took different approaches. Uh, I think uh, Tim took the approach of the 25. What would be like, I think that you like, I don't think anybody's disputing if that's on the top 50 movies. I took movies the top of. 20. I took movies from the top 100 list that i also enjoy or the top i took whatever movies that i enjoy that are on the top 25 30 50 and put them on my list and there's a lot of movies on top 100 that are i did not include movies that yes if you're sitting in a film class and you're like yeah it's a really great movie but um that's not one of my favorites. I didn't put one of those on there. Right, and I that's and I wasn't trying to be a, like that bit of a snob about it, but I also no. did want to be like, here's some cinema boys. <laughs> right, and and it's true. We were talking about uh, because what we are trying to do through this list of a hundred movies that we have is because we have, we made everybody put twenty five, and then it was going to be we were going to take twenty from each of us, um, and we were going to make well, and we ended up having 25 each because one person didn't even fill out their list <laughs> nolan um so it's 25 for each of us um and then we make our movie list from there um and then we were going to be like okay 
by consensus, what do we think is the best 25 movies that we watched? Where we were like, it was impactful to to us, it spoke to us, or whatever. Um, and so we've uh, and so we've watched a couple of those movies. We keep saying like, let's knock off a couple movies off of our list here and there, um, kind of stuff. So like I said, Tim went with that approach. Eric Pedersen and Ben Pedersen, who are brothers, they both kind of went off of the movies that they know and that they liked. Um, so movies that they had seen before. Um, but they aren't necessarily what you would call cinema masterpieces, but they are, they could either be very entertaining or they could be, um, just fun to watch, or they could be actually in contention. So like Eric loves, uh, what's his name? What, who's his guy? Who's his, uh, loves the artistic. Oh, he loves Wes Anderson. Yeah. He loves Wes Anderson. So, you know, fantastic. Mr. Fox is on there. Um, the grand Budapest hotel, all that kind of stuff um ben went with like movies that he knows and apparently ben is a really big uh what's his name uh from juno from oh, scott he, pilgrim versus uh, the world uh, uh, uh super bad oh we just talked about him the other day not jesse uh it's not jesse eisenberg it's uh the other one the other awkward uh white yeah, the, other, dude. Uh, the other awkward a uh, white dude in uh <laughs> I'm finding it. Or is it Jesse Eisenberg? No. Michael Sarah. Michael Sarah, there we go. No, uh, Michael Sarah's much funnier than Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, but I I mean it's not even about humorous, it's just <laughs> who they are. So like Je- I think Oh, I won't get into Jesse Eisenberg. I, I like Jesse Eisenberg, but I, I can also see him in being that humorless in real life. Like he's pro- he might be playing himself in Social Network, but I don't know. That's not fair to say. Um, Michael Sarah, on the other hand, is a hoot. Yeah, so they love Michael Sarah. Both of those boys do. I mean, I I like him too, one hundred percent. But they, so those were his like top twenty five movies. I kind of went with more. Uh, abstract choices but movies that i liked that are still considered great movies your, um, your list was the most adult of the of the of you your age group but yeah. <laughs> it's i mean yeah it was the most refined i was like they're not necessarily i mean anybody would sit there and i think with the movies that i chose you'd be like okay i could see why you chose those movies um but yeah i don't i don't sit there and think that they're contenders for best picture films um as far as you know oscar award-winning all the way around um but i did choose i did choose the most oscar winning movie of all time on my list so i mean i have return of the king by the lord of the rings it won 11 oscars people it swept it swept all awards it was nominated for 11 oscars and won all 11 of them wow yeah i forgot that (laughs) Uh, so, um, but on that list is, you know, all of our, and I think across all of our lists, we actually make up the entire Lord of the Rings somewhere in there. Somebody has fellowship. Yeah. Somebody has two towers that I have, uh, all right, as long as they don't have the hobbits on there. <laughs> the hobbits get a lot of hate. That's okay. Um, they're fine. They're just not great. I just don't think they're as great. I, I think that they, I think that there's beauty in the Lord of the Rings for how groundbreaking those movies sure. are. Cause like you watch them now to this date and you're like. There's some stuff where it's like, mm, but for the most part, you're like, damn, that could nah, that still holds up. That could have been made yesterday, and yeah. apparently that's how Kubrick is. But I've never seen Kubrick, so um, 
anyways so to get back on track to with the subject you're like why the hell do we care about this and i was like uh me and tim both put goodwill hunting on our list for our top 25 movies um that we wanted people to see um and we wanted everybody to see um because it's a phenomenal piece of art um i um i grew up doing a lot of acting um and i think that there is something to be said and we were talking about it before the show started and tim's like son of a bitch stole my line uh <laughs> is matt damon will affleck they do a phenomenal job of showing the humanity in their acting um and it it's it's a very raw and very emotional movie um where you feel the emotion the connection um that each of them is trying to create there's a lot of quiet silent moments um that create because if we're being honest there's not a lot there's no like action in the movie there's no like there's no yeah there's one there's one action where they get in a a fight way this fight and it's a very it's intentionally filmed <laughs> in a kind of a strange like slow motion way and i and it's film this isn't a scene that i'm it's how to scott about. snyder got to start yeah I, it's Zach not snyder. a scene Zach that snyder, i, I had to, uh that i had to talk about because it's not that important but i but since you yes there's one action scene and it's very slow motion and i think van zant does it in a way to show to illustrate this like tribal primal hatred that's coming out of these street kids it's just like why why are you this angry at a bunch of guys that you like went to elementary school well you're not really angry at them you're just mad at the world but the, the you show them swing the punches at slow motion to show how deliberate the violence is like they they're going into this like picking a fight it's like like they hunted these guys down literally so anyway Yes, but it's not an action movie in any way. It's all no. They're like you're the not... beats are it, the pace of the movie is all very slow, deliberate, from one scene of dialogue to another. Yeah, but how long is the movie? It's uh, that's a good question. It doesn't seem it. It's not. Long. It's not. It's not two hours. It's probably it clocks in probably somewhere between an hour and a half and an hour forty five minutes. And even then, if it's an hour, if it's an hour forty five, it's a quick hour forty five. Yeah, I. It feels like it flies right through. You're going to look it up right now. But I but yet in that brief amount of time it really captures um and there's some fantastical elements to it where you're like okay that that might be a stretch. Um you know, you're like oh, okay, is the janitor from the school like really going to be this genius who can Oh it's two hours and six minutes. Oh, two hours, six minutes. Wow. You know, and that kind of stuff, you might you might sit there and be like, okay, that's too far of a stretch for you. Um, and that's where, again, it's this predictable thing that we're going to get at later when he starts reading some of the other reviews. Um, but I think that the beauty in it is really just that raw connection that they are able to portray 
based off of their the the reality that they present. Um, I think that there are a lot of broken people out there in the world, and and Matt Damon character Matt Damon's character is one of them, and. And I think they showed his brokenness really well and and his cocky arrogance and all that kind of stuff. It it just came across so well. The, the, all the characters were written really well, and I think that that's just the beauty of it. The acting was phenomenal, and ultimately the character, the characters is what makes it, and it was beautifully done. Yeah, if I sum up my enjoyment of the movie, there's a – my enjoyment of the movie comes down to this. There's a – a veterans group that um, they sell various t-shirts and one of their shirts says uh, it's basically I can't I should have this just occurred to me so I should have had it in front of me but it basically says understand that everybody you're coming through is dealing with some kind of internal battle and have a little grace and I think what this this movie is all about, everybody's got some kind of internal demon where wh- whether it be externally placed upon them, like the the childhood they brought up were brought up on, or uh, internal where they've got a sense of insecurity or a sense of not living up to their own potential, that kind of thing, and that that when we go about knowing that people have those battles. And I think this is why we want to do this show for the, this movie for the podcast is I think Christians would be much better if we went around looking for what is hanging either, either hanging on people's sleeves and they're not talking about it, but it's there to be seen if we're being, uh, observant, observant or, or, if they're just a jackass and we can tolerate them long enough to get to know them, find out why, what makes them that, and and hopefully in, in, the, in the midst of a relationship, bring them out of that hurt. And that's basically what the, it, this is. These are people who are dealing with everybody in the movie that we're, that is a central figure is dealing with some kind of profound hurt and they're dealing with uh, trying to figure out how to deal with that hurt. And Will's the one who is dealing with it the poorest. And, and thus he's the central character of the movie. So I agree again, I think that, and you and I talked about this before we started recording. I, what has always marveled me, whether you really like, whether, you know, Matt Damon, particularly if you've seen Teen America. I'm Matt Damon. If you've seen Teen America by uh, uh, the South Park Boys, they have they are very savage towards Matt Damon. Matt Damon, I think, has certainly said over the years stupid things to make him kind of loathsome as a person. Um, Ben Affleck certainly had his own demons that have been lived out in the, in the tabloids, but the fact that two college kids wrote this movie has always just baffled me how two guys wrote a screen, uh, screenplay with this level of psychological depth of understanding how people are and what makes them tick and what makes them doesn't, doesn't tick is just always been, I think is 
kind of well at the time that was what was kind of sold can we believe a couple 20 year olds wrote this movie so they had no <coughs> real world experience to inform that level of empathy and, and understanding but they did so kudos to them that's what makes the movie, big part that makes the movie the great all right so again i read like a general synopsis of the movie um so uh basically matt damon is will hunting he's this uh janitor at harvard it's they jump back and forth between Harvard and MIT. He's at Harvard, I think. Wait, Will? No, he's at MIT. He's at MIT. He's at MIT. They go to a Harvard bar, and yes, Skyler's at Harvard. Yes, he's he's working at MIT. He, uh, we meet this professor Gerald Lambeau, played by Stalin Skarsgård, and he tells the class that somebody solved the program, uh, this problem, graduate level problem no one owns up to it they put another one on the board and while that is on the board he and his uh, ta assistant uh find will solving the problem he solves it correctly then in a subsequent scene will gets arrested for beating up a bunch of kids that he went to junior high with or elementary school with which i just talked about goes to jail Lambeau finds out about it because he's trying to find out how the hell this janitor solved a graduate level differential equation and uh, gets connected with the will when he's in jail and says, I can get you out of this pickle if the judge will let me get you out of this pickle if you come to school and let me be your, you be my protege and we'll start working on equation, equations and shit as they would say in Good Wanting. And so he does. And I think Will's just doing it because he wants to get out of jail and is like, whatever. And he's also got to go to therapy. Once a week. Once a week. And after trying to go to, trying to get Will into several of his colleagues, they're all not up to the task because Will's a smart. So Will is not only smart, he's not smart just because he knows math. He has a photographic memory because he's, uh, he can quote things from books so clearly will i think this is actually a good thing to bring up when he's going to the four the poor bastards who see <coughs> will as a potential therapist before he gets to sean uh he knows what they're gonna do because he's already read the books yeah he's read the will book. knows in turn he knows internally he's broken and he's read the books in order to create a defense mechanism so when some guy comes along he knows to flip it on him and be like yeah i know that bullshit i know that therapy bullshit i've already read that book i know i know how this thing works so when they're trying to do like therapy number one whether it be uh hypnotism or <coughs> talking it out as george plimpton tries it all fails because they're not really trying to get to know him they're like trying to skip All right, so yeah, the first scene I want to bring up is they all go to this Harvard bar and they meet Minnie Driver and Chucky, who's Ben Affleck, tries to impress her by pretending he goes to Harvard as well. And it fails miserably because uh, Clark, 
this guy, this clown Clark, played by Scott William Winters, who is in all kinds of stuff. Uh, this guy just—he works in so many. Now it's mostly TV shows. Good luck, uh, good job by this guy. Anyway, he tries to humil humiliate Chucky, and Will steps in and schools Clark and makes him look like an idiot. So the reason why I bring this scene up—it's not key to the hurt part of the movie but there's an element in the movie that apparently has been taught is now like college it's taught in college courses probably uh well i don't know i didn't see what college courses i don't think it's cinema classes i think it's like history classes they are now using this movie to show uh what protestant catholic beefs look like um and this is seen this scene's illustrative of it i don't i don't agree there might be some truth to that i don't frankly know that much about boston boston might be along the line if boston let's say boston's a town where protestants tend to be upper class or middle upper middle class and the catholics are the working then i guess that's where that fits in but I'm for this purpose. I don't want to get into the whole Catholic Protestant thing, but I think this is a good illustra illustration of where the movie starts showing the difference. There is a, at the very least, a working class versus upper, uh, not uh, white collar class element to the movie, where uh, assumptions are being made, and so this is a moment where Will can step in and say, "Yeah, I don't go to Harvard." And prove to this guy, I don't go to Harvard and I don't have your education, but I'm smarter than you are. And I'm actually more educated than you are just because I got a photographic memory and I've read all the books that you've read. But I can actually have more original thoughts than you do. And I think that's an important kind of key to the movie that will come on later as well. Yeah, I don't agree necessarily. I mean, it's hard when we're out here on the West Coast um, and I'm not. Uh, a working class man from Boston in the nineties to really like emphasize um, where things are going um, with that, the Protestant versus Catholicism debate. Um, yeah. It's so I don't, I don't have a horse in that race. I can't sit there and say that that's how I feel it is. I mean, I can, I can, try to piece together an argument for that where um you can make the claim that again harvard was started as a christian institution way back when um and so possibly the higher-ups in boston went uh that were christians went to that school um um but they when they went to those schools it was for divinity purposes it wasn't for, exactly you know, that's why i'm like <laughs> ah, that's not what harvard's known for in the late 90s you know you're looking at law and business um not uh, definitely not divinity school. I mean, I, Harvard has a, I, please for anybody who's taken Harvard's divinity school, I'm not saying that it's uh, a bad one at all. Uh, but I'm just saying that that's not really what you're known for or what, uh, the upper class is known for in, in Boston anymore. Um, so yeah, I just don't really know about that argument. Uh, so I'd have to hear a professor kind of preach on it. Um, 
yeah, I think that there's there's that element, but I don't know. It's something that honestly, at this point, it's a trope or it's a it's something that's been played out over and over and over again, right? The the upper class consistently thinks that they are smarter, uh, better off um, than the people in the lower class, um, and the lower class people um, believe that they or don't believe that they are worse off. Um, and actually, it's funny because there was a an article that I had to read today uh, to prep for one of my students, and it was an NPR article talking about um, uh, this movement one of the presidents made uh, where he there was this war on par- poverty that he had. Um, and so he went into the Appalachian Mountains, and the people in the Appalachian Mountains were like, stop saying that we're poor. Like, we're not. Um, and this was a huge thing for them, um, where it's like, this is how we want to live our lives. Um, this is who we are. We're proud of what we do. Um, we don't feel like we're poor. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, and what's funny is, is you could, you could take that to a lot of different economies around the world. And you can see that, uh, the United States, you could t- put that on a global scale where the United States believes that we got to go be the hero in this area where we're the, we're the snobby, uh, uh, rich kids that think that we know more than anybody else, but everybody else is like, why are you looking down on us? We haven't done any, like, right. We're perfectly content with who we are and we get by just fine without <clears throat> whatever. And so, um, and I mean, like, that's a huge stretch, you know, from this one conversation. But I'm saying that there's, like I said, it's, it's in a way, it's a trope or a cliche, if you want to say that there's this idea that, you know, but it, it's something that plays out in social settings all the time. It's not a trope, though, because I skipping, it's not something that I was going to talk about, but it does come up in one of the combative scenes between Sean and Will where Sean's trying to press him to be get out of his comfort zone and actually take some job that involves math. And Will's pushing back and saying, well, what if I just want to be a shepherd or a bricklayer? There's nobility to that. And Sean's like, yeah, there's perfectly nobility to that, but you have this gift. And so don't hide behind this nobility. And so I think that's where Will's bringing, Will's kind of in, in this scene, Will's trying to have it both ways. It's what Sean points out also in a scene later where he he calls uh will out and says you could have gone to any bar in southie or boston for that matter and yet you chose to go to a harvard bar with your buddies is there a reason for that and it's like will likes to be the guy with no job responsibilities and can just hang out with his buddies and drink beer and go to the batting cages but there's an also a side of him that likes to go to the Harvard bar and prove that he's smarter than everybody than, than the, at, at Harvard because um, he's just this working class class stiff who is half drunk all the time. So, yeah, I don't know. I, <clears throat> I don't know if I read into that that much. I do think that, uh, that he enjoys, I mean, it's evident in Will's character that he really enjoys being correct. Yes. And that he enjoys being the smartest person in the room. Correct. Um, now, and then here's the thing that, and here's where the whole like, yeah, they could have chose to go to another bar other than the Harvard bar. 
I don't remember whose idea it was to go to the Harvard bar. Yeah, like you said, they just showed up. They just showed up, and then... They walk in, and... Uh, and it's not like... Chucky says, so this is what a Hobbit bar is like. It's got equation, equations and shit on the wall. And... Uh, and Will doesn't intentionally go out of his way to pick a fight with that guy to like prove that he's smarter than him. The guy starts picking on Chucky first. Yeah, it's when Chucky... And so that's where I'm like, I don't know if he's necessarily in this very particular scene showing his desire to be the smartest guy in the room and wanting to do that. I think that is evident in his character, and so you can probably say that you can read into it here or whatnot. But I think that, honestly... uh, Yeah, and we're going to get into this later, but I, I think that one of the biggest problems that he has is, again... uh. I think he likes there is a part of him that likes being the smartest man in the room. Um and so he doesn't want to be around people um that I mean, it's almost like he likes to surround himself with people that and even if they're his friends and all that kind of stuff and and they've <clears throat> known each other since childhood and and that's uh really good, but yet there is a there's an element of safety behind that. And knowing that he's not letting anybody down. Or... Yeah, they're not challenging him. Right, exactly. Um, and so that's how he likes. And so he could be the... Uh, and I mean, like, we're going to get into it as we continue in this the movie talk. But he can continue to be the smartest guy in the world and, and know more than anybody else and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> as long as that those are the people that he continually surrounds himself with. Um and never challenges himself. And I mean, like, again, you could still keep in touch with those people. But, I mean, so, there you go. All right, so next scene I want to point out. So, like I said, the, the his mentor at this point uh, is trying to get him to, into a therapist. He finally settles on Sean McGuire, Robin, Robin Williams. And uh, so they sit down to meet. And Will is sarcastic and combative. At one point, Sean, for reasons I don't know, I, well, I do know, he's trying, Sean's trying to be vulnerable to try to get Will to be vulnerable, and, you know, the only way you're going to do that is to be the, to a guy who refuses to be vulnerable is to show, I'm going to be vulnerable, so even though this is their first meeting, reveals, uh, I think, well, I think Will asks about his marital status, and rather than de- deflect the question, he robin tells him that sean tells him that his wife's dead which will instantly figures out oh this is what i'm going to use to attack this guy so i can knock this guy down and not have to see this guy as a therapist and so uh under the guise of making fun of (laughs) Making fun of a painting that Rob, that Sean's supposedly, that uh, uh, not supposedly has painted, that's on his wall, uh, uses it to sh- to accuse Sean of being. Will uses it to accuse him of being uh, suicidal because his wife's committed uh, has died of cancer, to which uh, 
Sean then grabs it by the neck and says, I'll break you if you... No, if you... but he doesn't... No, he doesn't say that he's she's died of cancer. No, he says, you married the wrong one. Oh, that's right. He, you married the wrong one. That's He makes the assumption that she left him. That's correct. You're right. Uh, that's the last word that's coming out of your mouth by my wife, Chief, and or I'll end you. And so Will, of course, is challenged, and so he leaves the room and... Uh, Lambo figures, all right, that's it. On to the next one. And Sean says, nope, this is... See you next week. See you next week. Why? Because that kid is Sean 20 years before. Or... I think that's parts, why. Or parts, or parts, of, parts Sean. of Parts of Sean. 20 years before. Um, yeah, there... And that was part and of... And Sean's a psychologist, so he knows what... what he knows where what's making him... Well, and that was okay. part of, but that was also part of the initial, right? So, uh, so Sean doesn't practice anymore. That's also part of the whole, uh, yeah. So he doesn't, he doesn't do his practice. All he does is just teach at the community college. Um, and then he gets asked to, to practice and he's like, okay. Um, and again, it's, and the argument made by what's the teacher's name? Lambo. Lambo is. He's just like you. He's from the same, like he lived like yeah. what right down the street from where you grew up, um, and so yeah, they represent uh, an understanding of one another and who they are, um, and yeah, I do think that Sean sees sees that he could be one of the very few people in the world that can help him. Because he understands the chip that's on Will's shoulder of that pride of being where he's from. Um, and then that's what means stuff to him, that he doesn't need to shrink. Um, that, you know, he's X, Y, and Z. Um, and so I think that there's a lot to be said about that. So, I agree. Okay, so. We need another beer. need another beer. <laughs> beer number two. Dreams in Digital by Incinerati Brewing Company. Also in Clovis, California. We were thinking about going here, but we didn't make it. The can is very cool. Let's see how it tastes inside. I don't it's remember. Black. Black. Yeah, it's a black can with a wrap. If I don't for a say label. if I don't say it, I'll pass out. Smells interesting. Oh yeah, that's nice. It does have a funky smell. Initial, initial taste profile, pretty nice. Citra mosaic. That's all you need apparently. Oh no, it's HBC. HBC 1019 hops. It's very light. Yeah, it's crisp. It's good. It's hazy, though. Yeah, this one looks like pineapple juice. Okay, so uh, just so everybody knows, in order for us to get through, like, hit all the scenes, I printed out a synopsis that I found on IMDb when I was going, and I just highlighted the scenes that I wanted to talk about. The next scene that we're going to talk about is not on this person's synopsis. 
they she left the bench scene off the synopsis. That's the whole movie right there. Or arguably. Wow. So uh <coughs> Sean tells Lambo, yeah, bring the kid back. So kid comes back for the next meeting. Sean says we're going somewhere. They go to a park. They sit down on a bench. Uh one just from a cinematography standpoint, it's a master class in how to film a scene. Uh, there's a lot of Sean, uh, Will, Sean, Will, wide shots. And then as Sean's soliloquy really starts hitting Will, they merge both characters into the same uh, just long shot. And you can see Will digesting the dress down that he's getting. I thought about what you said to me the other day about my painting. Uh, Stayed up half the night thinking about it. Something occurred to me. I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep and haven't thought about you since. Do you know what occurred to me? No. You're just a kid. You don't have the faintest idea of what you're talking about. Why, thank you. It's all right. You've never been out of Boston. If I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo. I know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. Seen that. If I ask you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. Ask you about war, you'd probably uh, throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watch him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I ask you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable known someone that could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. Who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel. To have that love for her be there forever. Through anything. Through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss, because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. I look at you, I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. 
But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. But you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine. You ripped my fucking life apart. You're an orphan, right? Do you think I'd know the first thing about how hard your life has been? How you feel? Who you are? Because I read Oliver Twist. Does that encapsulate you? Personally, I don't give a shit about all that. Because you know what? I can't learn anything from you. I can't read in some fucking book. Unless you want to talk about you. Who you are. And I'm fascinated. I'm in. But you don't want to do that, do you, sport? You're terrified of what you might say. You move, chief. That scene is one of the best moments in cinema I think I've ever seen. Good, uh, Robin Williams is utterly spectacular in that scene, the way he delivers all the lines. Um, and Damon, who, for saying like three words, maybe, <laughs> yes, or, you know, little one word things here and there, is also just the facial expressions he does to just, convey that he's digesting and for the for the first time probably ever listening to someone uh dress him down is and his is his equal is really impressive <clears throat> colton yeah. your thoughts yeah that scene is again it's kind of one of those human connection scenes um i mean what when we when it came on, we were like, oh, here we go. Yep. Because um, you just know, uh, if you've seen that scene before, you're just like, wow. Um, and what's hard is that, you know, I don't think uh, I don't think Tim expressed how colorful Robin Williams' language is. Yeah. <laughs> and how he's, he's angry. He was hurt, you know, um, by that statement that he had made the week before and you know he again life is and actually how i think that this movie continues to transcend time is life is about experience yeah um yeah that scene you're exactly right that movie that's that the binge scene is meant is a important life moment where Sean is using the where it's being conveyed that yeah you can learn a lot about life by reading a book but you actually have to go because he, yeah he mentions uh, going to the Sistine Chapel like you can know a lot about the Vatican and stuff like that but you don't actually know what it smells like to walk into the Sistine Chapel right and so yes you're correct like this it's whatever is stuck in your head that's fine but that's not the same as that <laughs> that world is different than the actual literal world and experiencing things so right and 100 percent, and that's why you like when he flips it back on him and he says like 
I'm not going to pretend that I know you just because I read Oliver Twist. Yeah. And so just because, because again, and again, he opens the door to say, you have experiences. Yes. This is what you had growing up. I'm not going to sit there and pretend to know you. I'm not sitting there and I'm not sitting there trying to diagnose you or, or do anything. And that's one of the beautiful moments is. I'm not trying to fix you. I'm not trying to fix you. I just want, like, if you want to talk about what happened, then let's talk about what happened. Right. And that's how it goes, right? Yeah, and I think that's one of the, again, to try to stick with the overall theme of this podcast, I think that's one of those moments that's instructive for us as Christians of, like, I don't need, if you're in a small group, you just want to get to know people and let them tell their story, and you don't need to sit there and offer them up, like, Oh, you know, you should read this verse from the Bible or this chapter or whatever. Just like, no, let them just say whatever. Let them just tell people without being told like, oh, let me fix you because Jesus wants you fixed. So let's try to figure out how to fix you. No, just let them be. Right. And they'll look for help if they want it or just by letting them be able to talk about it is enough right there to just be like, okay, I can finally like rid myself of holding this inside and not talking about it is just enough. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just the classic, like, why are you a bully? Well, cause I was a bullied as a kid or, you know, I was, or whatever, or, you know, I got a bully, I got a father who's a bully. So this is how I act at school. So anyway, yeah, 100%. It's the, the importance of experience versus this just shallow. Cause I think Sean understands that at this point, will the, the four or five guys that Lambeau's taken him to are like probably 40 or 50 that at some point the court, the government system, the social system has sent will to as a, like a psychologist or something. Yeah. And he's probably seen time after time them just looking at his at his file and being like, "Oh, I see you have uh, domestic abuse at home." Blah blah blah. blah, blah. Let's so talk like, about that. Let's talk yeah. about that. Well, how does that make you feel? And it's like, and so he's it, it. It hasn't worked. So he's just figuring Sean's going to do the same shtick, and this is Sean trying to say like, "No, I know there's more to this." Yeah, and his big thing is, "Let me get to you before you get to me." Yeah, and. And he did get to uh, to Sean or Robin Williams' character before. Well, let's jump to, to that because that's the next scene that's important because this, this is where we see how Sean's got hurt. So the next scene, they're finally having some camaraderie and Will asks him about his wife and he fills in how his wife died and, and Will says... Well, aren't, aren't you ever gonna like date your wife again? Your date someone else again? He's like, no, I was already married. And at this point, I think they'd also had a conversation about Will had gone on a date with the mini driver character Skyler, and he was like, are you gonna call this girl? And Will's like, no, this is she's perfect. Why would I bother calling her? Because I don't want to ruin like this perfection that I've. It's not he's. He's bullsh He's bullshitting Sean, and Sean knows it. He's basically like, "No, I don't want to get to know her because if I if I get to get if I get to know her, then I have to put my guard down, and I don't want to put my guard down. So at this point, I'm just gonna invent excuses for not getting intimate with anybody." And so Sean calls him out, but then 
frankly, correctly, Will calls Sean out for his own bullshit because Sean doesn't want to entertain love either. Now, this is a little different, a little difficult, I would have to say. It's not completely fair. I think uh, I would say in the, it works in the movie because it's showing that Sean's also kind of not. Will clearly has figured out like Sean's not practicing anymore. He's teaching at a junior college. He's not traveling anymore because he's mentioned that he, you know, used to travel with his wife. He's not traveling anymore. So Sean's basically set in some level of grief, depression that's got him also paralyzed. So I don't think it's necessarily important that he's not dating again, but Will's using that to call him out on his own bullshit of, well, you're just not going to get out of whatever muck you're stuck in. Cause, and I say that because, you know, there are, people who lose a spouse and they don't want to remarry. And there's other people who lose a spouse and they're like, no, I need to get married again. And it does not any disrespect to the previous spouse. It's just like, they know like, no, I need a, I need a spouse to like keep me honest or I don't like being alone or whatever the reasons are. But anyway, it's an important moment where we find out Sean also has some current level of hurt that he's not dealt with. Yeah. And actually, I mean, uh, just through this conversation about, you know, Sean having this hurt and them uh, getting through this conversation, I think that there's, I think that actually one of the things that helps make this movie so good and actually um, just thinking about another thing that's that's held in high regard, I'd say that this movie has a lot of parallels um, as far as the main character goes to um, to the catcher in the rye and Holden Caulfield. Um, I think that there's, you know, this whole idea of, again, yeah, I'm not going to call her. Um, there's this perfect idea of this girl in his mind. Um, and it takes a lot for him to call her. Um, eventually again, this fear of rejection, um, that comes from him and probably stemmed from being an orphan, which is suggested in the, um, in the story um and that's there's parts of that elements to his character to to will's character where he believes in you know um in the fact that he's afraid of rejection and failure um and where again there is this he gets to build himself up as the smartest person in the room and he can always be that um in the world that he is he can be that guy over and over and over again um in the world that he has surrounded himself by and that's a nice safe defense mechanism for him um and so i and but yeah but through this we also learn that sean's character has um, some hurt and some problems going on um, with him. And we don't ever see these problems when we look at the other four characters that are trying to pull um, Will out of this situation. We don't ever see those problems get resolved. Um, those people are going to remain broken. Yeah. Um, and And that's the truth. But yet there is something... And even then, 
it's implied that he goes to California for the girl at the end of the movie. Yes. And then it's implied that Will, uh, Robin Williams, Sean, and Ben Affleck's character Chucky, right, Chucky? Yes. Are happy for him at the end of the movie, but we don't see uh, what's his name's reaction, the math teacher's. Yeah, we don't see the math teacher. Um, yeah, we just see. <laughs> well, Casey's character, Casey Affleck's character, doesn't seem to give a shit. He's happy. We would see. Yeah. Anyway, he's like happy to be sitting in the front seat. <laughs> that's right. He's like, all right, because uh, that's Casey's. Just yeah, Casey's Casey. Oh, uh, I'll get to Casey later when we get to fun notes about the movie, but um. Uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna combine I'm gonna get a little bit of order of the movie. There's and just combine two scenes, not necessarily in the order. There ends up being two fights, two scenes where Sean and Lembo fight. There's one in a bar where they're oh, having yeah. kind of a status update, and then there's one in the off in his office. And the yes. office is an important moment. Uh, well, no, let me, no, 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 let me not do that. Cause now I'm thinking about it. Let me do this, the scene where he breaks up with Skylar first and then get to that because of now I'm thinking how the movie goes. So, uh, Will's in the middle of all this coming out. He's getting feeling pushed. He feels, uh, he and Skylar are clearly getting really close. There's again, the, not the Protestant Catholic thing. But this working class versus rich class thing pops up in his relationship with Skylar because at some point he throws at her. Um, she's been asking him all kinds of questions about him, and he's been lying the whole time. He claims he's got like 14 brothers. He's got 14 brothers. Uh, and he was not taking her. So he's really not letting her in. He's somehow figured out she's a rich girl. He's assumed or they've had a conversation that's not on screen that he's figured out she's got money because she's English and she's uh, she's here at Harvard or MIT, she's at MIT. And so she's at Harvard. She's at Harvard. And, and yes. I got you. And in, there, in, in the middle of he's over at her dorm and she tells him. Uh, I'm going to Stanford for medical school. I think it was medical school. And do you want to go with me? And instantly the defense mechanism of Will kicks in and it's now fight or flight. It's fight or flight. And he he decides to fight. Well, he decides to do both. He fights and flights. He So he decides to pick a fight because he doesn't want to possibly get intimate with anybody. So... He accuses her of being a rich girl and that she's he's just her little like working class fling so she can feel really good about herself to which she reveals like, yeah, I have a lot of money because my parents died. You pretend you You douche douchebag. 
they died. And she says, don't you think every single day I'd rather give all that money back just to get my parents again? But I can't. And all I have is this money. And so it's kind of implied in what she says that she's living up to some like dream they had for her or she had. And they want her to live up to like to go to this really like achieve academically and go to the best schools in the world. And so she's spending this inheritance she got from her parents dying. So again, it's this other thing like Will decides to be like, you're rich. And so therefore you're bad. Yeah. To which she says, no, actually I've got a bunch of hurt that I'm dealing with too. And my hurt is actually driving me to achieve. And I'm sure there's all kinds of other stuff, but this is a moment where she, where we get to see hurt in a different way. She's like, no, I actually have hurt and I'm trying to live up, live up to some thing that I've been called to do. And I'm using money because my parents died and I'm able to do it. But no, I actually have dead parents. You son of a bitch. Yeah. But I'm not using that as an excuse not to get close to you because I might lose you, but you are. And you're assuming that I'm a bad person because I'm a person with money. And so I don't remember all the other words, but it, uh, it, it culminates in her crying. And every, every time I watch that scene, Minnie Driver acts the shit out of that scene. Cause when she cries, it feels, it looks, you know, there's sometimes like there's tears. She has got one of those, like Will had punched her like in the, <laughs> in the stomach kind of cry after he leaves. Like it is a really, really rough moment of just utter vulnerability that she really sells in that scene where you just feel like she's just like, she really did fall in love with this kid really quick. And I think it's because she loves his mind and she loves that he is different than her, that she, that he is this poor kid, you know, a lower class kid. Well, we say really quick, but there's no concept of time in this movie. Correct. We don't know how long things have been going on. Um, and like, and that might be where and there's been other scenes where there's been two different scenes where he shows up and he'd like done, he's done her homework for, her and she's like, like in the first scene, she's like, I have to actually do this work in order to graduate. And in the second one, she's just like, finally goes like, how do you do this? Like, how does your mind work? I don't understand. He's like, I just see it in my brain and it just happens. And so, um, so she, I think she clearly is part of this, uh, uh, I don't know what uh, affection she has for him is just this complete admiration for his brain. Sure. And the irony is she's the one person in his life who admires his brain, but isn't calling it like saying like, Oh, you need to live up to this standard. There's no scene where she's like, so when are you going to get a job? Well, how long are you going to keep doing construction? Well, so that's, a, like that's after mom? he moves to California. <laughs> we don't see that part in the, in the film. That's in the director's cut. Yeah. And also something, well, no, let's go with, uh, yeah, I think that that scene's really powerful. I, I think that you unpacked it well enough to where I don't feel like we need to okay. go into it much more, but I think. Yeah, we need it. So before you move into the two arguments, you need to give a little bit more background on Lambo. Okay, so do we want to do it that way, or we want to use the two scenes and then unpack Lambo? No, I feel like you need to give background on Lambo first because there's already been hints throughout about him and kind of what's going on with him. Okay, so Lambo's um, this interesting character. Um, 
if you watch the movie once at kind of a superficial level, he just comes across as this kind of a prick. Could be drunk. Yeah, could be drunk. Um, so, because he's, you know, why is he... Why is he interested in, in Will? And, you know, what's the whole motive here? And why is he continue to push Will? And so, all right. So here's Lambo. Lambo is one. Lambo sees Will as, I pulled the guy's name up. He sees Will as basically a Srivanasa Ramana John. Uh, yeah, Indian guy. That's my best at his Indian name. I think he's even brought up in the movie in a conversation between Sean and Lambeau. Uh, Lambeau brings him up. Uh, this Swervanasa Ramanajan is uh, actually he's been made into a movie within the last five or six, well, the last 10 years, was a uh, Indian fellow in the sticks who was solving differential equations and all kinds of crazy math with no educational background and through uh really hard just brute force got him got a professor at oxford or one of the premier universities one off oxford or cambridge to recognize him so this guy's a, just a true genius he was without any education was solving extremely hard math problems and so lambo sees will as that it's it's his chance to be whatever the professor was who finally championed the Indian guy at Harvard at Cambridge or Oxford. Yeah. And uh do brown together do groundbreaking work in mathematics that he and his and all of his colleagues that he's striving for to beat. Um and we see little scenes of this throughout the movie where he's got uh, his colleagues coming in and will solving problems they've been working on for 10 years. And the, you know, the guys, but the colleagues off. problems, that's important for the story. It's the colleagues problems. That, that's yes. and lots of pride. That's, that's correct. Yes. And yeah. From and that's Lambeau. it's yes. And, but Lambo's taking great pride in the fact that he's discovered this progeny and he's blah, blah, blah. So now what is underneath this is, and we find this out in the conversations between him and Sean is that Lambeau himself is a very insecure individual who it appears did not live up to whatever grand potential he thought he had and what great uh, lights uh, he had set for himself. And so, yes, he's won the uh, Fields Medal, which is like the Nobel Prize in Mathematics. But somehow still doesn't feel like he's achieved whatever he thought to, uh, to achieve. So Colton wanted me to bring this up because we were talking before <laughs> before we started rolling. I had not figured this uh, this thought about this. Colton noticed that in all the scenes he shows up disheveled. And a lot of the scenes he's drinking, which is absolutely true. So it he seems to be... He is living the rock star. He views himself as a rock star mathematician. Let's put it that way, right? Because then that goes with my observation in at least two scenes. He is very uh, uncomfortably hitting on co-eds in his midst. In one scene, 
uh, Will's in uh, duping one of the therapists and he comes running out and the therapist is like, and as before he comes running out, Lambo is telling this uh, attractive co-ed that uh, solving a mathematical problem is very erotic. And she nods her head like, oh, really? Like she's now like, like okay, he's trying to get in my, this creepy guy's trying to get in my pants. And then another she scene. She sees A pluses in her does, future. She does. And then in another scene, they're at a Harvard. She's like, easiest math class in my life. Yeah, they're at an MIT reunion event, and he's drinking. And he's, yeah, he's been and he's been drinking. And a girl shows up to say, hey, somebody solved the, pro, the problem. And he looks at her and says, why aren't you drinking with me? It's a Saturday. And you can tell she gets this look like, oh, my God, you're gross. So anyway, he fancies himself. He is papering over his insecurities by being a mathematic, and he's always walking around with a fucking scarf around his neck. And he's got mini me with him, this guy who just loves it, worships him at his feet. So he's got the guy who will tell him how great he is, and he's he's math professor rock star, and loves every minute of it, even in the opening scene where he comes and tell everybody. It's, the problem is solved. It's all very grandiose, and everyone's like, "Oh, it's all, it's all." So he is living it up, but it is masking an insecurity that he has, and but Sean knows about because he and Sean were roommates in college, and so Sean saw whatever there is, whatever these insecurities come from. He saw them from Lambo as an undergrad and whatever Lambo shared with him. And again, in the movie, Sean throws some of that, some of that stuff out. So this brings up two very, two very big arguments where the checkup in the bar, the checkup in the bar and then the fight in his office and the checkup in the bar. They're both the same argument. It is Lambo understandably i say under i would say understandably in a big picture saying will owes it to himself he owes it to humanity to use this brain that he has to do the things that we're doing in mathematics i don't think that that's unreasonable and yet sean is correctly saying he needs to deal with his own shit before you have him do the great things you think you want him to do. One. And two, if he doesn't do the great things you if he doesn't do the great things you want him to do that you didn't do, that is not his problem. I think that's also Sean is seeing Sean is seeing Lambo wants he said, to do the Dad, great... stop living vicariously through your yes, son. Yes, exactly. Dad, stop living vicariously through. So again, they're both correct. It's these two people. <clears throat> and again, I think, yes, Lambo is has his demons and he's pushing Sean, uh, he's pushing Will too quickly. But I think there's all, it's, it's a good and bad. He also means well for Will. But Sean is saying, no, 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 no. You're pushing him too quickly. Because in the midst of all this, uh, Lambo's got him doing all these different. Uh, uh, he's he's having Will take uh, uh, interviews 
with defense contractors and there's one with the NSA. It's a hysterical scene with Ben Affleck where Ben Affleck pretends to be uh I but why? <laughs> no, but why is Ben Affleck in that interview? Cause because Will doesn't want to go. Because why? He doesn't want to get out of his taste. He doesn't want to get out of his nice little working class. I still think that he's afraid of rejection. Mm. There you go. Yeah, that's true. I still think that when it comes down to Will. You know what? That's exactly. You are exactly correct. And as many times as I've seen that, I have never made that connection. And I can I can prove that you're correct. So, uh, Colton's bringing up the scene where he sends the first scene is where he sends uh, uh, Affleck, Affleck, Chucky, Chucky, and Chucky makes a hash of it in a spectacular way and manages to get a couple hundred dollars out of the interview. <laughs> so, in that scene. It's I'm going to send somebody else and no, no, this company is, there's no way the hell they're going to hire me. So I don't have to deal with that. And in the second scene at the NSA interview, everything's going great. And this guy's like pitching him and like, you know, the, the, the real, I think the question, the, the real question here is, Will, why wouldn't you want to work for the NSA? And then Will takes him up on it because he doesn't want to have to deal with rejection. He wants to just implode the thing before dealing with rejection and so he goes on this rant about why he would never want to work for the nsa because of the military industrial complex which i will have to admit at the time this movie was way in 1997 i would have rolled my eyes and today i would have been like no nah, there's a lot of truth to that so anyway <laughs> um so yes in both cases he in he ensures that the interviews will implode so he doesn't have to deal with rejection yeah so he implodes he implodes his relationship with Skylar so he doesn't have to deal with rejection. Yep. He implodes all the interviews so he doesn't have to deal with rejection. And as Sean points out to Lambeau in one of their fights, the reason why he is surrounded by Chucky and uh, Casey Affleck and Rip is because those guys would literally die for him and he's never going to be rejected nope. by them. He, they are selflessly willing to, to they, they are selfless friends for him. And so, yeah. And so, uh, which do you want to add any more to that? No, I think that, I think that that's absolutely correct. I think he implodes a lot of situations because it's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be vulnerable and I don't want to get rejected over and over and over again. He continues to, to find himself in those situations where that's, um, one of the main purposes that he has for his self-destructive tendencies. Um, and so I completely agree. Uh, Oh, yes, the Lambo and Sean thing. I think it's always hard. <laughs> Their roommates, they know each other's weaknesses, and they don't have a problem pulling punches on each other. 
in uh, their their conversation or their their arguments that they're having. I do think that uh, that Tim is right. I think that there is a. Well, I mean, where I was going to go was actually falling back on what you were saying is that I think that there's, um, I was like, you can, I was like that, that element might come back later, but I was going to say that I think that Tim has a point in the idea that we are, and I mean, in our society today, there's a lot of nurture out there. Um, and so Lambo represents the push. Um, and yes, I do think that he's trying to live vicariously through his, you know, quote unquote son protege, um, through this process. But at, at some point, right, you have, there has to be a push with the nurture, right? Like there's to where it's like, yes, we can continue to heal as we continue to move forward. It's not just like sit here and stay stagnant and be here for the rest of our lives. Um, and that's actually one of the big messages of the movie where it's like, you know, at some point you got to go, um, you got to move. Um, now at what point do you move? I mean, yes, it's safe and it's comfortable. And even if you're in the healing process, but at some point you got to leave the hospital. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting there and I'm healing and, and I don't think that this is a theme of the movie. Cause it's not like, I don't feel that will ever gets fully attached to Sean. I I think that he's more attached to him than Lambo. Um, because he writes him a letter at the end and there's like a moment or whatever. But I don't feel like there's a I'm not leaving because like because Sean is my safe spot. No. I don't feel that from there. No, there's two similar moments where we'll get to and we'll break that down. And I I agree with you. It's not the Sean moment, it's the other moment. We'll get to that in a minute. Um what I think what you what you brought up, which spurred my mind, is there's another underlying dynamic between Sean and Lambo, which is I brought up the part where Lambo feels like he didn't uh, he didn't achieve everything he should have. But there's also this push that Lam Lambo is also concerned because he it comes up in the conversation. Lambo admits to Sean's face. You're smarter than I am. You are more brilliant than I am. And there's a level of animosity. Again, Lambo judges success by achievement in life. And he's there's a level of resentment with Sean that he didn't achieve, that whatever Lambo didn't achieve that he thought he could have achieved He's also mad, and the reason why they're not—they haven't stayed friends—is he thinks Sean's pissed away his greatness because that dumb bastard went off and got married. Yes. And what Sean's trying to push back on is there's got to be an equilibrium between achievement is not the <laughs> empty rock star lifestyle you're living. And if that's what you want Sean to live or will to live, I am not going to tolerate that. And my choice to become, even though I'm smarter than you, to become a lonely, a lowly practicing uh, psychiatrist and get married, that wasn't a failure. 
it was a life choice I made, and it was frankly a better life choice, I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And so he's trying to push back on, I don't want him to live the, the extreme lifestyle you want where a, a success is is measured by field medals and where you're where you're teaching and how many sycophants you got who surround you and all that kind of stuff yeah i think i think that it's healthy in life i think that we make mistakes i think humans make mistakes we need to recognize that um but and this may be the teacher talking is that when we make mistakes, and even if we continue to make mistakes over and over and over again, same mistakes, that hopefully someday we sit there and we reflect on it and we go, I mean, it's a freaking, uh, it's a Rascal Flat song, you know, God bless the broken road that led me to wherever it is yeah. that I am. It's, yeah, not, yeah. it's not just you, it's just, yeah, we we've all come down broken roads. Yep. And it sucks ass, but at the end of the day I feel bad. I feel like in both of these situations when it comes to Lambo and it comes to Sean none of those are mistakes. Even if you sit there and you're like, I'm going to go and pursue my career and this is what's important to me and that kind of stuff. There's people out there that aren't meant to be wed. Correct. 100%. And I think that if Lambo was to get into a relationship based off of how narcissistic he is, I don't think that that would have <laughs> be been, been a healthy relationship. Correct. So by all means, stay out of it. Be a lady killer for the rest of your life or whatever. <laughs> don't go and ruin some other relationship or some other girl because she's got you know yeah eyes for you or whatever um but he was able to grow and to develop from that situation um or not grow and develop but i'm just saying that for both of them i it should never be viewed as a mistake. If you, for anybody at home, if you chose to go to college somewhere off and you paid and you had a bunch of debt that you acquired and you were like, I I hope that for any of you, you're like, I wouldn't trade those experiences for the world. You're like, yeah, maybe like I shouldn't have done it that way or whatever, but ultimately it wasn't a mistake or whatever. Or maybe you were like, I married that person and that was a mistake, but you know, there were there were good things that came from it. I I learned what it is to to grow and to develop in a relationship and be like, hey, that's not something that's okay. Um, but as a teenager, like you know, you recognize you were like, oh, I was hormones, you know, right. or whatever. Um, or even if like in Sean's case, where he married someone, she died, but he doesn't regret any part of that. And it doesn't mean that their relationship was good the entire time. I was like, everybody knows that marriage is hard and that, but just because somebody's priorities is different than yours doesn't make it a mistake. You know, some people are like, you got to go out and you got to go see the world. And I mean, like, this is also part of the conversation about, about Will, where it's like, Will's priorities are different than theirs. Yes. Now, the key thing is, is that gift element, which yeah, we're getting to. Well, let's 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 talk about that scene. So, next thing we want to talk about is uh, the greatest scene in the whole movie. Yeah, I mean, 
I really like. I think this movie has two. Yeah. Bench scene the bench and this scene, scene and this are scene. two indispensable scenes. They are two of the great scenes in cinema. Um, I, I think be- the bench scene gets way more love, and so therefore I like the the hood of the car scene more than I like the bench scene. Well, I will tell you, I think, you know what? I think that's partially age, Colton, because, you know, when I saw this, when this movie came in 97, I was 20-something. I was probably your age. Um, I think the the scene we're gonna t- the scene that we're talking about is is between Chucky and Will, and I think at twenty seven, if it's a scene, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little personal here. I think because you have a similar friend group that I had when as I when I was in my twenties. This scene resonated with me, and I think in the same way it resonates with you. Uh, if I remember correctly, the scene was uh, when they do the Academy Awards, they pick a scene and they show it when they're going to do Best Picture. And this movie was nominated for Best Picture. I have it in my mind's eye that this was the scene that was shown. Uh, I might have been incorrect because, you know, age has a way of creating myths but i'm seen in the whole damn movie i i, I convinced agree when it was shawshank redemption it was the scene where he plays uh mozart Mo, the the aria over the radio and for this movie for this movie for best picture it was this scene so we're talking about the scene this is the scene uh will and chucky are working at a construction site they're working at to be precise at a deconstruction site because they're throwing shit over the side they're they are taking down a building uh they moved to they're they're at his the the hood of uh chucky's car and they're now smoking cigarettes and drinking beer because i think the day's the day's wrapped up chucky asked him how everything's going and at, uh just for everybody who uh because we skipped over at this point chucky has met skyler uh the boys really like Skylar, partially because she's English and so she can drink like they can. And she tells filthy jokes like they do. So everybody likes Skylar. And hey, how's Skylar doing? Oh, Skylar's left and she's gone to Stanford and we broke up. Oh, that really sucks. Oh, why didn't you go with her? And how's the whole... So uh, when are you done with those meetings? Like the week after I'm 21. Yeah, they gonna hook you up with a job or what? Yeah, fucking sit in a room and do long division for the next 50 years. Yeah, probably make some nice bank, though. Gonna be a fucking lab rat. Better than this shit. Way out of here. I want a way out of here for I mean, I'm gonna fucking live here the rest of my life. You know, be neighbors, you know, we'll have little kids, fucking take them to Little League together up Foley Field. Look, you're my best friend, so don't take this the wrong way. 20 years, if you're still living here, coming over to my house to watch the Patriots game, still working construction, I'll fucking kill you. That's not a threat. What? That's a fact. I'll fucking kill you. What the fuck are you talking about? Look, you got something none of us have. Oh, come on. Why, why is it always this? I mean, I fucking owe it to myself to do this or that. What if I don't no, want to? No, no, no. Well, fuck you. You don't owe it to yourself. You owe it to me. Because tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'll be 50 and I'll still be doing this shit. 
That's all right. That's fine. I mean, you're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. You're too much of a pussy to cash it in. And that's bullshit. Because I'd do fucking anything to have what you got. So would any of these fucking guys. It'd be an insult to us if you're still here in 20 years. Hanging around here is a fucking waste of your time. You don't know that. I don't? No, you don't know no, that. No, I don't know that. Let me tell you what I do now. Every day I come by your house and I pick you up. When we go out, we have a few drinks and a few laughs and it's great. You know what the best part of my day is? For about 10 seconds from when I pull up to the curb when I get to your door. Because I think maybe I'll get up there and I'll knock on the door and you won't be there. No goodbye, no see you later, no nothing. I'm just left. I don't know much, but I know that. When I was in my 20s, I did not have friends who held me down. Nor did I have, I don't remember at the time, I don't think I had any friends who were, I felt were, but still, it meant a lot being in my 20s to hear a conversation where two guys are in their 20s for somebody to stand up to somebody and say, fuck that. You can leave, we can still be friends. You aren't being, I think this is where the class thing kicks in again. He is telling him, you're not a traitor to your race to go want more. And in fact, I'm telling you, if I have any hope in this world, if you don't make it out of here, no one can make it out of here. Yeah, I think that scene is really powerful because, and, and as as much as I can sit there and talk about how Matt Damon was phenomenal this whole movie, uh, like I said, I think Ben Affleck has the best the best lines in the movie. He does. Where again, this conversation where Ben Affleck's just like, "If you don't make it out of here, I'll fucking kill you." He never raises his voice. I don't even says no. You you're a piece. Of shit. He's like. He's and actually, I mean, with Tim as it, it's not even just about if you don't make it out of here, I'll fucking kill you. It's every day I show up to your house. Oh yeah. And I hope that you're not fucking there. That you never that you never left a phone number, no nothing. You just left. And that's huge. Like that moment where he's just like. Again, I don't know where the hell you're going. Because I know that at least you made it out of here. It was a huge thing. And I mean, like, here's probably possibly some of the argument where I feel um, maybe a little bit more emotional connection. Uh, I... I was born in Tulare. I left Tulare growing up and I moved around and then I came back uh, when I was in high school, right when I started junior high or middle school. And then since then, I haven't left the area of Tulare County. Um, and I don't foresee myself leaving as far as uh, moving somewhere else. Um, hey, you're not stuck here. I'm not stuck here. Like, I don't. 
I am not mentally stuck here, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm not sitting here believing that I'm trapped within the walls of the granite mountains that surround me um, to where I feel like I, I'm stuck. I can't go anywhere or anything like that. It's more of this is a this is what I've chosen for myself and and I don't know, maybe we'll watch It's a Wonderful Life and we'll talk about it on the podcast next month. Uh and maybe I'll be bawling my eyes out about how I'm George Bailey. <laughs> but um and so I sit there and I and so yeah, I don't necessarily relate to Ben Affleck's character of of necessarily being stuck in Southie. I don't think anybody necessarily feels stuck. Um, but I do think that there's an element of Ben Affleck's character that I relate to of the... Uh, of I'm not necessarily stuck, but this is the life that's laid out for me. Right. Um, this is the one that I got. Um And nobody likes to hear that. Like, if you were listening to this and you feel like it's a sob story and you're like, no, Colton, like, you could be this or you could be that or blah, 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 blah. And it's like, listen, listen, I'm not, I have no problems with where I'm at. I, I actually, I really enjoy my life. Um, and I think that I do, that I have the opportunity to do great work every single day. Um, and so you, but here's the thing is that you, and this is one of the themes of the movie is Matt Damon is correct in that, well, what's wrong with fucking doing construction? Right. And there's nothing wrong with doing construction. There is nothing wrong with doing that shit. But if you've got something special, <clears throat> Then you got to go. <laughs> when you're one in a million. When you have it's honestly, it's <laughs> there's a super there is a superhero concept in this. There's the Spider-Man concept of with great power comes great responsibility. Correct. Do you just let Uncle Ben's killer walk right out the door? Right. And, and that's one of the messages that's presented here. And here's also, and that's the, one of the powerful moments of this movie is that again, this is done. And like I said, there are some supernatural elements where, you know, there's this guy who has, who's got this super brain or whatever, but at the same time, this is a message that is presented to you. And we're not having to put people in freaking spandex to be able to present this message to you. If anything, we're showing psychological damage like over and over and over again to present this message. And, and basically what Ben Affleck tells him on the hood of that car is exactly what Uncle Ben tells Spider-Man is that with great power comes great responsibility. And you have a responsibility to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and I hope I never see you again. Yeah. And it's phenomenal because if you've seen the end of the movie, you know that. He leaves without a word to Ben Affleck. Well, this moment comes after Sean's told Lambo, Chucky and all those guys that you make fun of would die for this guy. 100%. And 
I don't know that Sean envisioned even to this extent that Chucky's willing to say, I'm willing to tell you to go not live my kind of life. I love you that much. You you owe it to me. Yeah. To I don't know. To to be like over overstated to be like not my friend anymore, like not we where we don't see each other on a weekly basis or a daily basis. <clears throat> the friendship won't last if you don't actually get outgrow this friendship. That's how much I love you. And I'm finally telling you to get the fuck out. Yeah. The other thing is, I don't think this was uh, intended by the movie, but I think it's now to almost almost 30 years old, 25 years old. I think that this movie is a good um, instruction in terms of we've I, at the time of this move that the time this movie was written it would have been very much in vogue to be like education and intelligence and all this kind of thing. And this movie in a roundabout way, maybe it was intentional. I don't know. Is saying like human worth is not based on intelligence. No, let's be brutally honest. Chucky's not getting Chucky's not where he's at because he's also someone who's really intelligent. And if he just stopped drinking so much, he could do more than work on cars or dis- or uh, work construction. And the rip, the guy who plays <coughs> Rip on Yellowstone, wouldn't be a mechanic if he would just stop getting tanked every night and live up to his potential. There are people who have average intelligence, yeah, and those are the jobs they're meant to do. And the uh, the I think the point. Again, I don't think this was meant to be a part of the movie. Maybe it was, but when you, t- I think it's an important lesson for today, where we really, really, really value intelligence and 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 are also at the same time a lot of parts of our society, including TV ads for universities trying to sell everyone that we all are intelligent. We're not. We're not all intelligent, and the lesson is. Human worth is not valued by one's intelligence. Nope. Well, I mean, so Tim says, I don't know. I'm of the mindset that you could have, that I think that we add value to life based, you can, I think that there are, the argument for multiple intelligences exist. I think that our, I think that what Tim was getting at is uh, the scholastic intelligences where you may be – you as far as – I think there is a lot of value to people that – well, maybe. I don't know because I'm like if you're an average – get... no, <clears throat> no, 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 but I, I'm, I wanted to backtrack on the idea that – you know what? Actually, no, I, if you're an average Joe in every single way – yeah, that doesn't mean that your life has any less value than anybody you're a else's. Jack of all trades, master of none, and you're just a blue collar worker. Who cares? It's just the way it is. Who cares? That's yeah. not. That's not how we. It value doesn't mean that. You, that it doesn't mean that your life is less valuable than somebody who's absolutely not a genius or whatever. So never good at anything. Yeah. Or never exceptional in anything. You know. 
Okay, so we have this moment. We have this very key moment where Ben basically, Ben Affleck, Chucky says, uh, you need to stop messing around and get the hell out of here. I like that your refrigerator account knows our computer. I know. <laughs> yeah. I always say it too. <laughs> All right. We are getting ready to wrap well up the synopsis and then we've got fun facts for the movie sorry if you thought this was going to be a short episode you should have clearly didn't watch our uh, or listen to our chariots of fire episode <laughs> or unforgiven <laughs> or unforgiven episode so um we're just going to turn this into a like a we're going to pretend we're part-time filmmakers and turn this whole podcast into a movie critic website uh, hey also podcast. wait something that we didn't talk about is well and hold on i gotta i gotta pour my i gotta pour my beer real quick hold on this is cellar maker brewing company which i never heard about until the liquor store owner that pointed it out to me he had just gotten it it is from oakland california the uh it's called one foot in the grave it's very appropriate for halloween it's a West Coast IPA. It's a West Coast IPA. It's low on the alcohol. It's six point three. I mean, that's pretty low for. It's, it's on oh the no, side. there's a Nelson hop in here. There is a Nelson hop, and you can taste it. It's okay, and it's that Nelson. It's that effing Nelson hop that makes it okay. Uh, super listener, part time co host. Andy and I had the first two cans of this four-pack at Kawea Brewing Company on Friday. And we both agreed that this was one hell of a a can of beer when you were smoking a cigar. The cigar somehow took off that Nelson New Zealand bite. It's it's okay, but damn, I'm gonna start staying away from New Zealand. It's just I know it's not. It's worth, just a funk. It's it, not you, worth like the if gamble. You, if, yeah, it's a total gamble, and for twenty twenty five dollars for a four pack, it's just not worth it anymore. I will say, well, and some people are like twenty twenty five dollars for a four pack. You could get a suitcase for that. Um, it's not it's not nearly as bad as some of the other ones we've talked about recently. No. It's, it's actually you know what? It's not the cigar. It's just the more you taste it, you get used to it. But that's not how it was for the just so we're clear, that's not how it was for the Belgian Beaver, and it's definitely not how no. it was for that stone. No. Um, but what I did want to do is I wanted to toast to Tim. Because this is our first Tuesday night recording in probably like what, like oh. three, four months? Yeah, like, absolutely. Well that says toast to you because you're You've had quite the. Uh, it's just water polo season, baby. You know all that kind yeah. of stuff. But, but yeah, yeah we're actually recording on a Tuesday. Yeah, like and I gotta say, to. I gotta say, it feels nice to be recording on a Tuesday night again because I, I, there's just something nice about starting off your week with this. I know it's not Monday. Um, yeah, and we're just talking about a stupid movie and not anything like super deep, like I don't know, the war on Israel or something. <laughs> The celestial, uh, what is it? The celestial uh, council, whatever that stupid council is, which I have a whole episode for that. We want to talk about that. Um, thing. 
but no i i like recording on tuesday nights um where again it's something that i look forward to just starting off my yeah week and it's just... our little small group together and we hope you guys when you listen to it it's your little small group usually yeah. particularly when we're talking about more churchy things but again i think this movie is instrumental as a toolkit for how we should be as christians which we're gonna, people which we will 100 percent recap at the end correct i mean we've been unpacking a lot of this stuff um but again, this, and also not that I didn't like our Saturday sessions. I'm just saying, like, what we had to be, we had to space our Saturday sessions apart a little bit. Yeah. You know, there was like a month where we didn't record and stuff. And um, this is just nice uh, to be back on a Tuesday night starting a routine. Else. A routine. It's not after the Oklahoma game where you know it's a it's a coin toss on whether or not they're going to win or not. So. <sighs> We've only lost two games, but you're correct. In the last month, it has been a coin toss. <laughs> All right, so last big penultimate scene. Uh, uh, Sean, uh, Will shows up to Sean's office. Whoa, and... whoa, 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 whoa. What? No, we're missing the Lambo scene. What Lambo scene? Where he burns the paper. Oh, well, I skipped. I intentionally skipped for that. You want to bring that up? Yeah, let's bring that up. So uh, Sean's in lambo's office and is irritated clearly irritated they're going through some equation and he's irritated because <laughs> lambo's bumbling his way through and has the wrong proof for the equation and wills is correct and wills will has done it in a very quick manner and am i you give me a look. I'm no, 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 one hundred percent. No. And Lambo is arguing with him, and I think Will is just done with the math. Is he done with the math? Is he done with Lamb? Anyway, he Lambo is trying to pull out his work, his proof to show that he's correct, and Will lights his paper on fire. To which. Lambo, this and this is I think this is correct. I think this is I'm guessing this is why you wanted me to bring it up, and you're correct for me to bring it up. Lambo leaps at the burning piece, like three page paper, as if he's burning the original like Dead Sea Scrolls and blowing it out. Oh, I know, I know. Yes, I skipped over the scene. This is an important scene. Blowing it out. And Will's like, this is f- fucking beneath me. This is a waste of my time. This is like element elementary bullshit. I'm sick and tired of it. I'm tired of being your trained monkey. I think that's part of it. Because that previous scene where his colleague came in and Will and uh, Lambo is clearly using Will to expose to. He's having Will show the proof that this guy's been struggling on for like five, ten years and be like, yeah, my protege did it in two minutes. He's doing it to do victory laps around his colleagues. And Will's tired of it. He's tired of the dog and pony show. And so he burns the piece of paper. Right. Well, but okay. So wait, we're missing some. All right. You do. You do. No, no, no. I'm not saying like I'm saying we missed a couple of things. So one. I think this scene is important because one, it, it's it is the clash of prides that's now come to a correct head. because of the line that comes out of Lambo at the at the end of the scene, right? And and what it act so, and so the paper that 
that actually is so so will hands lambo the paper and he says here and lambo's sitting there looking at it and he's like did you consider some yeah did you and he's like it's right and he like flips over and he's like but did you and he's like no it's yeah right. he's he's so the paper is so the paper that Will's that, basically created a new proof, I think, is what we're supposed to is see, and and he's 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 gone, he's so, gone or unorthodox in his. Well, and something that we had talked about before is that so Lambo has constantly been having, uh, Will prove uh, or prove other people wrong, right? And he has now done it to Lambo, correct. And Lambo is not okay with it. That's correct. Yeah, you're correct. And now his world has now completely is now shattered. shattered. And he's like, he's Where again, now... he was the rock star correct. that we had talked about. And so, and then, and so he does this and shatters his world. And Will takes the paper out of his hands and he says, Do you know how fucking easy this is for me? Because he's burning this bridge too. And so, yeah, and exactly. And so he goes and he uh, lights it on fire. He's like, I don't fucking need you. Yep. Um, and I think, and he, he and he does say, like, you know how many jobs I can get with blah 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 blah, and and yeah, but is he ever gonna take any of them? No. Right. You know, or at least possibly at this point in the film. And from that, yeah, Lambo goes to save, and you say that it's to save his work, but actually, what he's saving is Will's work. Where this was an answer to a problem that he himself could not solve. And Will says, you know, and I think he gets one last dig about, like, don't blame me for your own fucking failures. Yeah, he says something. I don't, Will, whatever Will says to invoke what Lambo says is not memorable because my wife and I were talking about this scene before. You showed up even to the house to record tonight, and my wife could quote Lambo like word for word. Yeah, where Lambo says, Lambo, "I there, I would never wish. I wish I never met you." Yeah, exactly. Well, he's it's no, that's what. what do you he, know what it's like? Do you know what it's like having met someone like you? Yeah. Like, do you know what it's like for someone like me to meet someone like you? And on the one hand, he feels, and to which he said that I can never be correct. What you are. And how frustrating that is for him. Correct. Because he's had to work for it. Right. Will doesn't have to work for any... It just... It just... He's a... He's literally a polymath who just walks in and just like, yeah, I just see the, the problem. I just see the proof. And you're stuck in 40 years of this is how math works. Which is why he's like, "Did you consider this?" And this is like, "No, it were it, it's correct, it's correct, it's correct." Because Lambo's throwing at him all the things he had to learn, all of the famous proofs that had been worked out to try to figure the problem, and none of them worked. And yet, will and yeah, so you're correct. It, Lambo is now I think Sean, I I think Will is lashing out in part. I think Will's lashing out because 
as much as I've been positive for Lambo, and I, I do, you know, a lot of things, look, folks, a lot of things in life are good and bad, and we're really bad. I don't know if it's an American thing or a modern thing or a human thing, but we're very good. We're very bad at absolutes. It's like someone's either bad or good, and most things in fucking life are good and bad, and Lambo is like most things in, Lambo is life. His character is life. On the one hand, he he has good intentions for Will and he's got bad intentions. And in this scene, I think the bad intentions boil over with Will, where Will's like, I choose Sean over you because you just see me as a monkey. You're just, I'm just a performing monkey. I think that. And Sean is invested in me. Sean at this point has decided, has proven to me that he wants to see me for who I am. Yeah, I think that Lambo represents what a lot of us represent uh, a lot of the time, and that at the end of the day, yeah, he's also selfish. Yeah, he's looking for gain out of the relationship. And remember, at the in, where Sean's in, just looking for relationship, right? And through the beginning parts of uh, Goodwill Hunting, you'll notice that actually Lambo and Will have a pretty good relationship. Yeah, they got a good rapport. It, where it's like, oh, yeah, here's this and here's that. To the and they, point where it almost looks like a team kind yes, of effort. Yes, and his TA's getting jealous the whole time. Right, where <clears throat> they they go back and forth and they talk about theories and all that kind of stuff. And they go, and and that's great. But, but then Lambo's pride is insulted. Correct. Which up until this point in the movie, we hadn't seen yet. And so this causes this huge kind of rift between them. And then that's when I believe, in my opinion, Will sees Lambo's true colors. And not necessarily bad ones. Again, it's not bad. It's just it's a selfish moment from Lambo. Where my world of being the smartest person in the room, because again, he's, he wants to be the smartest person in the room. That's why he surrounds himself with lackeys. Correct. And uh, does all that because him and so, and it's funny because again, we talked about how Sean represents for the flaw, the four flaws that we see in the four characters that are trying to pull him out of this disparity that he finds himself in. Um, where he's the kid from Southie, um, which aligns with Chucky. Um, He's the kid with emotional damage, um, which aligns with uh, Sean. He's uh, the kid who's afraid of rejection, uh, which is uh, Lambo. And then uh, he's the kid with emotional... Uh, um, well, and I guess... I. What's his connection to the girl? The, the, all four of them have some sort of connection to to the wholeness of will um and trying to pull him out through well, that she's process the, you know she's the spirit she's the one she's the spiritual like i'm she's just there because i don't know it's, it's you know gonna be crass about it she's just like straight eros like i i like the sex i like you i like you know and you know if we have a and I don't mean that to demit. I mean that's like a, she's just your typical like male Hormonal female teenager. relationship. But like no, the hormones draw me in, and but then the more I get to know you, I you know I'm willing to overlook the flaws. 
Yep. Now, what's funny is, you know, the movie ends before he ever has to reckon with the fact that he's lied about all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it'd be an interesting to see what Goodwill Hunting 2 looks like. There's probably, they're both on their third marriage, but that's might be too cynical. Um, going back to the Lambo thing. And again, <clears throat> if you're listening to this and you're like, you guys are reading way more into this movie than you need to. Let me just tell you, uh, Colton is an English teacher. I was raised by an English teacher. And my opinion of good literature, good movies, good songs is you read whatever you want them. If they've laid the basis for reading a lot into them, it doesn't matter what the author. I don't give a shit what Damon and Affleck intended for the movie to be. If it's well written and you can draw life lessons from it, then draw the life lessons, whether or not the author of it intended. So, well, actually, just so we're clear, <laughs> no, I no, this is really important because for anybody that's thinking that, I remember going to all of my college classes where we went over comparative literature and and all that kind of stuff, and you got to sit there and you got to argue with your teacher about the fact, like, what if Mary Shelley just wrote Frankenstein because she just thought it was a great fucking story, right? You know, like there she like. <laughs> that was like one of the arguments and kids are going to ask you that all the time in high school. They're just like, or maybe they just wanted to write a story. Why Correct. does it have, why does it have to have all these political implications or sure. whatever? And it's like, and it's because we get to look at it from this angle that maybe even they didn't necessarily it, see the impact right. that was going to come from that particular right. piece was going to be right. Frankenstein, is one of the pinnacle works from the romantic era because of what it's talking about and its relationship to the man versus machine. Right. Um, and it's timeless. Playing, be- timeless playing God. Because, right. Yeah, exactly. It's, ti- it's a timeless archetype because no, whether it's 100 years old or 200 years old or whatever, you can still read something into it for your day. And sure, when Mary Shelley was writing it, Maybe she wasn't sitting there thinking about the political spectrum or about what's going on in the industrialization and all that kind of stuff. Sure. You can make that. But yet the book still has themes and elements that can 100% be drawn to that with evidence and proof. And that's what we're doing. We're sitting there and we're saying this can 100% be brought. So at at which point Matt Damon – and Ben Affleck stumbled on a gold mine. They did. They they stumbled on a gold mine. If you didn't intentionally – write all these characters to have these kind of these elements to them then you accidentally stumbled on a gold mine of of an assessment of human nature correct and i so i lay that down because as you were talking about Sean and Lambo it occurred Lambo is looking at Will from a utilitarian standpoint it's just a, it's a utilitarian relationship. Yeah. Sean's relationship is a relational relationship. There is no what am I getting out of this? It is strictly it is the same as it is with Chucky. It is I'm here whether you're smart, you're dumb, you're working for the NSA, you're doing construction, I don't give a shit. Lambos is utilitarian. What are you doing for me? Now, if you're hearing that and you're like, well, Lambo's a terrible person, my response to that is 
The welcome world. to the real world. Yeah, welcome to the world that we live in. That is the world we live in. And I think whether Damon and Affleck intended it, this is this, Will is now growing up as he's dealing, let's say, with the... Well, I don't... Whether they... He now has two fathers. He has a utilitarian father and he's got a relational father. And he's he's now being forced to grow up by these two men. They've... Some... Two guys have finally called him out on his bullshit and said, we're not going to be some boy from Southie who just gets to run around and get drunk every night and do bullshit work as a janitor and whatever. You're now, we're now going to really ask you to grow up really quickly. Right. And one father is, what are you going to do for me? I'm going to get you something out of this. And again, this sounds, if you're listening to this, it sounds really crass. That's the way it is at work, folks. Yeah. Your boss hires you. It's like, what are you going to do for me? How are you going to make my numbers yeah, look I'm good invest- for my boss? I'm investing in you. I'm so investing in you. you. What do you? What, ha- you what am I going to get out of you? And on the other hand, you have a father who's just like, hopefully you have a good relationship with a father or yes, some kind is, of father-like figure. That is who's the- just like, I don't give a damn what you do. Just be a good person. Be a good father. Be honorable. That kind of thing. And Will is now having an answer to two of those those two fathers. He's now has a, a father represented in two people. Yeah. Okay. Big scene with Matt with uh, Sean. Goes to Sean. It's his last session under. It's the last session ordered by the court. And Sean out of nowhere springs on him his youth report is basically the report that the social system had and will says oh you've looked at that and as we're flipping through we can see pictures have they had the conversation was it in this they in a previous scene they'd had a conversation about child abuse or was it this scene i was previous <coughs> previous scene is one of those moments where the two of them uh Will, I think, uh, open. it feels like he can open up more to Sean where they have a conversation about child abuse. And uh, That's a powerful scene. Sean talks about his dad. Both of them have fathers that get drunk. Sean talks about picking the belt. Uh, Will, I, think, I don't even think it was his father. It wasn't his father. It was his foster parent. And now he... Gave him the choice between the belt and the wrench, and Will says, "Oh, the wrench." Every and and Sean says, "Oh, the belt." Every time he says, "No, I picked the wrench." Why? Because fuck him. So it's basically his way of saying, "There's nothing you can do to do to me that to break me." But of course, you're gonna har- every moment it happens, it's hardening him. But um, so they've had this conversation. Uh. And Sean says, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here. It's really bad stuff. And presses and presses and presses. And and it gets to the point where he's telling him it's not your fault. And Will's saying, I know. And it just goes over and over again. I don't know, five, six, seven times. And then finally, Will breaks down like a baby and starts crying. And says... I'm sorry to Sean. 
what do you think, why do you think he says, I'm sorry? I've read some stuff as what people think, why he says, I'm sorry. I, I remember the first time I saw that scene and he's, and the fact that he said, I'm sorry, was powerful. I don't know that I've spent much time thinking about it, but I think it is whether you put any time thinking about it, whether or not, or not the fact that clearly he's done nothing. Sean's laid out an entire youth adolescence of being abused and abused and abused and is basically telling him whatever piece of shit society has told you you are today is not your fault. You are the result of generational sin, which is another reason why we want to talk about this on this episode, on this podcast, because that's a big theme we as Christians should think about. He is the, he is the result of generational sin. And he says to Sean, I'm sorry. Is it just something one says or is there something in the in the line or have you not really thought about it either? I think that there's a couple things that he could say that he's sorry for. I think uh, one thing that's really important to note is when somebody like and you're saying Will said I'm sorry, correct? Yeah, Will Will right. Will is sobbing. And he's he's like he's really like he's lost. He's now like ah, and he says I'm sorry. I think he just says it once. I don't think he says it more than once. And Sean doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't say like you don't have to be sorry about anything. But yeah, Will clearly says I'm sorry. There's a couple of things that people could possibly suggest is um, for him saying I'm sorry is there's. And this is why I wanted to clarify. I was like, it's Will, right? Um, yeah. Because I didn't want it to be Sean. Um, and like start going on on this tangent and be like, whoops, that was wrong. <laughs> um, is it's the first time in the entirety of the movie that we see Will um apologize for his actions that was what i read online that was the like the critic things like this is him even though he's being given absolution shall we shall we say from his father his priest he is fully being an adult and saying and i'm sorry for how i reacted to that yeah and and again there's an element of you you don't blame him you don't uh there's no part of you that's where you're like he has nothing to be sorry or like you know it's right it's okay you know kind of thing it's um i think that that's the more powerful thing I think that you can possibly make a connection to where he's apologizing for what he had said several sessions earlier about his about his wife um, to where, again, at least he's owned up for some sort of action that he's done. Um, uh, 
you can make the argument that it's for he's he's apologizing for getting out of control because again this is a psychological thing where he's where all of a sudden for the first time ever he's broken down his walls and he's like i'm sorry i did, I did like he he wasn't expecting that kind of uh out yeah uh and which guys do on a regular basis where all of a sudden they'll cry and they'll be like i'm sorry um and they'll apologize for crying because it's just not an emotion that they expected to be feeling or something or a response that they were expecting to have um from a particular instance uh or and my last one is that you can actually possibly make a claim and i mean like you can i maybe you maybe you could refute this with the wrench comment where it's like although isn't it sean that says i took the wrench no oh, will, will says, says i take the shirt the wrench and and sean says i'll take the belt anytime chief i think something like that said i took the wrench um or, so, yeah i could have sworn that it was flipped but i believe you um I think that with that he could say I'm sorry is where it's where it's almost like a it's a it's a natural response to distress um in this situation where all of a sudden he's showing vulnerability um and so he's saying I'm sorry in this moment um of vulnerability to where he doesn't want again that rejection or that lash out against him um from being um as hard as iron as he has made himself um to hopefully avoid damage so i think any of those four options could definitely work for in my opinion, for why he says I'm sorry. Yeah, I think those are all great options. The the, the act, you know, the the obvious answer is we don't know what he's saying. Sorry no, the for. obvious answer is they wrote it down in the script. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I forgot about the fifth answer. Um, they were like, "Oh, wouldn't it be great if you said I'm sorry here?" Yeah, write that down. Write that down. Yeah, I I, I agree with your. I there's any number of reasons it's for the things he's done because he's lashing out it could be because he's waited this long to open you know to finally really open up to where he's actually this vulnerable to cry i i don't it's 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 because we as humans say i'm sorry in a lot of really emotional times like when someone's died or something and we say i'm sorry because it seems to be the best thing to say who knows I think at the end of the day, I think the reason why I brought it up was every time I see the movie and I had the same reaction when we watched it on Friday night, I just think it's a really smart, intelligent choice of words that Matt and Ben picked for him to say, I'm sorry, just visibly. Those are the only words that come out of his mouth. Like, you know, I feel, you know, whatever could have, you could have had him say, like, finally someone gets me or, or, or just say nothing. I mean, nothing. 
the scene would have just as been powerful if he'd just broken down and cried. And it is powerful enough just to see this tough guy break down and cry. But every time I see this scene and he says what comes out of his mouth is this blustering I'm sorry, it just, again, one whatever one wants to read into that, I think they're open to. And I, who knows what Matt and Ben, but it, it was a really intelligent and it just added to the poignant of how people react to finally having wills finally had all the walls break down yeah and he's finally come to the conclusion somebody gets me and it's okay for me to be pull my pants down ass exposed backwards in front of this other guy who's also seen trauma in his life and I'm not going to be, I'm not going to worry about breaking down and crying in front of a, another tough guy. Yeah. Okay. So the movie ends, we'll wrap it up. The movie ends with, uh, <coughs> I don't know, we could, we could spend a few minutes on this. I, uh, Sean and Lambeau do reconcile. They have a nice scene where they're at a restaurant and they talk about things. It seems like they kind of, hash out their differences. I think you could argue from like a movie critic standpoint, <clears throat> this scene's kind of rushed. Sure. But, you know, what do you want to do? Draw the movie into like two and a half hours? Um, well, I think it's scene, not an Avengers movie. Like, oh, and no. I think this is where some of the critics got really snarky about, oh, everything kind of ends in a nice big, like, you know, with a bow on it. Okay. You know, everything doesn't have to be postmodern and tragic. You know, you know, fucking deal with nice warm fuzzy endings that was that such a bad idea so uh lambo and sean have a reconcil a, a coming to jesus moment where i think they just both realize they are two cat different cats um there's a scene where will goes to a uh job interview and seems to be taking it seriously so we get this idea that he's now Decided not to be a jackass and burn bridges. Yeah. Uh, there's a there is a really nice poignant scene where he turns is it twenty one? He's turned twenty one. I don't remember what age, whatever age he's turning. His birthday happens, and a very and a, the finally the first time in the entire movie Cole Hauser is sober because the entire the whole rest of the movie he is drunk out of his ass. Cole didn't have to really act in this movie. He just act, had to act either drunk or extremely hungover. Uh, Cole's finally uh, sober because he's built some piece of shit Chevelle with a straight six, I think. Yeah. Worst beater car. Well, worst beater car, but it's a great scene because that is America 30, 40 years ago. And it's a great scene. It's also a great scene to see. These two, these three guys who don't have too much money between the three of them laboring because Casey Affleck's character, as we find out in scene after scene, can't keep a job to save his life, cobbled together enough money to put together either a Chevelle or a, it might be a Nova. It's probably a Nova and with a straight six and give Will a car for his birthday. Uh, and then. Uh, 
Sean decides to go travel the world. Will's gotten him out of his comfort zone. So yes, it's a nice, nice fairy tale ending. Uh, Will's been a nice breath of fresh air for Sean and gotten him out of his comfort zone. And he's going to take a sabbatical for him from his teaching job and go travel and sends him a letter, sends him a letter. It says he's leaving. Uh, Chucky shows up with the boys to Will's uh, house the room he's renting and knocks on his door and as Chucky once said it would be bring him nothing but pleasure for him to show up at his house and no one answer and that's exactly what happens and Chucky gets a big nice grin on his face because he knows Matt's finally left the nest and then we see Will slash uh, Matt driving in his piece of shit Chevelle Nova whatever what we think is off to go chase down Skylar at Stanford. Yep. And that's the end of the movie. It's the end of the movie. And for all the critics who wanted some darker, like more realist, who needs that after an hour or 45 minutes of like really dark, deep shit. I don't want, I don't need to end a movie where like everyone's like, yeah, they're still living in the detritus that we found them in at the start of the movie. No, 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 no. He takes his own life. That would have been the. Yeah, oh, yeah. It would have been so like postmodern, like realistic. Yeah. You know, he sits there and he fucking puts a bullet in his mouth. <laughs> have you not seen Dead Poet Society? Come on, bro. Yeah, exactly. That's why that's not on my list of watchable movies. It's online. I, I don't I, look. You're a better man than me. It is a phenomenal movie, and I probably you know what I haven't watched it in a long time. I am gonna watch it, and, and no, I am, we're gonna watch it. We're gonna watch it, and all right, I'm gonna take a bathroom break, and then we're gonna have a quick conversation about Dead Poet Society, which is needs to be said. I need to, <laughs> oh. I, need to I need to confess something. He needs to get something off his chest. He's like, I fucking hate suicide movies. Meanwhile, we're going to watch this movie in a couple weeks, and Tim's going to cry like a bitch. Be like, holy hell. This movie's way more sad than I thought it was. Anyways, if you're listening to the Go to Hell podcast tonight, we want to say thank you very much. It's currently, if you want to know how long we record for, it is 9.41. I think we started at like 7, so we're like nearly two hours and 41 minutes into this podcast all right here comes tim to tell us about suicide movies yeah we're at 238 <laughs> super podcast all right um i will admit i still i think i've talked to, we've brought suicide up on here and i've admitted that i have been super judgy about suicide for most of my life and i think the last time i watched i know for sure when it came out i was uber judgy about suicide and probably the last time i watched dead poet society i was super judgy about it and so i need to watch it now that i don't have that kind of oh anybody who commits suicide so i need to rewatch it now that's not to say that if i rewatch it and then i decide to rewatch it i will watch the end because I really like The Star is Born, but I will not watch the end of the movie when, uh, uh, what's his name, kills himself. Because it is just too hard to watch. I've never watched The Star is Born. Uh, 
Anyway, that's Bradley Cooper. And, Bradley uh, Cooper, when he commits suicide, it it just brings up too many people I know directly, or the people we've talked about on this podcast that we know indirectly, but just direct indirectly enough in our small, large town that it just is like I can't. It's just the hopelessness of it, but but it's still I should I need to watch Dead Poet Society because that's still arguably. I would say this movie is his best. I find this to be his best performance, but I haven't watched Dead, po- Dead Poet Society in a long time. That's probably that might be his. Best. Oh, you're talking about Robin, Robin Williams. Williams. So I need to I need to watch it for someone who adores Robin Williams, not only for the stand-up comedian he was, but also the actor. I need to rewatch that. So, all right, I guess we'll watch it this Friday, Tim. All right. Okay. Fun facts. Oh, fun facts about yes, that was the end. Let's do some fun facts. Unless you want to talk about the end, the end's the end. It's it's a, yes, it's a cheesy schmaltzy ending, but it requires. Well, I mean, so. my argument about the end is, I I agree with you on the fact that like not everything has to be a tragedy, um, where there needs to be some emotional response at the end or anything. And I think that there's there's plenty of emotional response in a happy ending. Um, and to where, yeah, I don't feel like you need to be like edgy or anything like that. That it doesn't necessarily root for your heroes. And I mean, like, yeah, even if he's a flawed hero, like you know what I'm saying. Will's a flawed hero through and through. He picks that fight. He goes to jail for the right reasons, right? Like, well, I would say from a particular from from a very Christian perspective. This doesn't. My problem with, and this did start in the '90s. I don't think it wasn't before the '90s brought about a, a media critic, movie critic, that was very postmodern, and that's kind of a broad term. But one of those, I think, one of those things was kind of looking down upon redemptive stories, and. This it, look, yes, is this an archetype? Yes, but most stories are an archetype. This is a redemption story, and the reason if this if this had not been a redemption story, you and I wouldn't have picked. Well, we might have picked it because the world's a bad place, but we picked this because it's a redemption story. In the same way, when we do Shawshank, it's a redemption story. There's yeah. redemption to be found in the we have series of character we've have four characters we don't know what chucky's life story is but chucky's probably survived the same story it's it is easy to imply infer that chucky has the same domestic life that will does so we have four characters with their different levels of uh, hurt trying to save this one character with a lot of hurt and of course at the end you want redemption because what's the point what's the point of it I, otherwise you're just living life like <laughs> yeah but I think like okay so there was a so I get the critic that's like you know there's something to be said about death. I we read a 
you have to read a story in Solari in, the eight, in your eighth grade year, and it's a part of eighth grade literature. Sometimes it creeps into ninth grade literature. Um, and at the end of the story, there's kind of this this very interpreted ending, and and very similar to what's going on here. What is the what is the interpreted outcome? Um, I feel like there's a lot more of a positive one that gets put out of Goodwill Hunting. Out of this book that we read, it's it can very much be interpreted that things went poorly, or you can interpret it that things went well. It's very much a flip of a coin. And I always was adamant that things went poorly as far as um, the main character's life goes. The, the book, by the way, is uh, The Giver. Oh, yeah. And so the end of the story is, you know, this um is this boy with the kid um they run away and and there's this possibility that they die at the end. And if you read through the story and hopefully you read through it, I, there's this element of sacrifice that's being presented over and over and over again and so um this theme eventually plays out in the end where I believed and I made this argument in college when I had to write a paper on it because I took a children's lit course and this was a part of it. Um, we talked about uh, the giver and I said, I think that he died. Um, and if you go on to and it, for those people that don't know, there's actually two sequels to the giver and it turns out that I'm wrong. But for the longest time, she didn't write a sequel. Um, and so it was up for interpretation as to whether or not he died. And I still believe that she wrote him in as a, to continue his story, mainly because of peer pressure. But I thought that there was a huge element of sacrifice um, that she was presenting. Um, where again, as Christians, when we read stories, and not everybody gets a happy ending. Just because you follow Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you get to you get to live out your days and become a lavish you don't get to have everything uh for the rest of your life and that's absolutely true life is not a fairy tale i get that and and again i don't want to preach that especially on this podcast where we're talking about jesus christ on a regular basis and we're talking about this where it's like well if you do all the right things then like you know you're gonna live a great life or whatever once you recognize your potential then right like no nope. that's the whole thing with matt damon's character well once you recognize your potential and you're like all right well i i overcame my my emotional damage now i can go and live a great life i'm gonna go find that girl and live a great life happily ever after i think that if you think that that's what's going to happen for him you are greatly misguided by again the idea of what's happened in this movie yeah no the yeah the the lesson of the movie what happens in his life eventually doesn't matter the, the he's gotten out of his little cocoon and that's what we know and that's that should satisfy us and that was the point of what it was that they were going for yeah live life yeah live life which means things are going to still get ugly and nasty down the road and when they do you don't well, lash go, out yeah go seek fucking help right 
Um, exactly. To where this, I was like, to where at the end of the day, again, you you might be speculating that things become a fairy tale ending for him, but actually, the only things that those two guys that give a damn at the end of that movie care about is the fact that he fucking left. That's all that they care about. Sure, no, no. I, I don't I don't mean to suggest that... No, no, no. I'm saying for the after. critics, I'm yeah. saying that for them, all that Will and Ben's character, Chucky, care about is the fact that he's going to go out there and he's going to try and yeah, fucking gonna, live a little. We, live a little. Yeah. He could be back in fucking a year. Sure. He like, might, you know, he might go find Skylar and Skylar's like, no, I, you're, you're a mess. I don't need to, but you're, and that's where it's like, if you're or sitting there you thinking said earlier, it's like, okay, well, what job are you going to get? You know, HP's down the road. So you want to get a good job at Hewlett Packard? He's like, nah, fucking no. I'm going to go build, rebuild Chevelle's at the local. Well, and that's the thing is like, so we sit there and we're like, oh, it's a happy ending. I don't, life is not a happy ending. No, life, and if your thing is, if the happy ending is he goes, marries, he marries Skylar and goes get a, and gets a six figure job somewhere, you've missed the point of the movie. Right. The point of the movie isn't what job he gets. No, it's not. It's that he lives life and he exposes himself to hurt and then is okay to, then be like, all right, I'm gonna dust myself off like he does, like Chucky does at the batting cages when, when Will's dust throwing fastballs at his chin, dusts himself off and says, all right, I've been dealt a fastball to my chin. I'm gonna get up and go find another girl besides Skyler or go find another job. Absolutely, and so that's where I I believe that there's a lot of beauty in the ending. Um, to where I don't necessarily view it as a positive ending. I think it's... It's a I, French ending. It's open. <laughs> well, and I think I think it shows that... That Will is a dynamic character. Correct. One that is able to change. And I believe... If you're sitting... I, I was like, ultimately, at the end of the day, what you're arguing is whether or not people change or not. If you're sitting yes. there and saying that, and you're like, well, people don't really change. And I was like, I think people are willing to take risks um and try to change but then ultimately go back to their old habits but that's not necessarily what we're getting at here he decides to go out and take a risk yep and let's see what happens but and we don't know what happens we like to and that's where you are you are led to believe that things turn out positively for him but there's nothing that proves that things turn out positively for him it's Honestly, it's culture that has made you believe that. And but at the same time, for me personally, and I believe that it's the same for you, we hope that everything turns out positive for him because that's what we hope for. Yeah, we hope. And all of our main we characters, hope. all we of hope. our heroes, we continue to hope the best for them. We hope. That'll that'll get us to our next movie, hopefully Shawshank Redemption. Another marathon uh episode and we can't turn this into two since it's all on one subject so but it's an evergreen podcast so if it takes you a couple weeks to get through or a couple days then that's fine but regardless we just want to say thank you so much for listening to us uh, we appreciate all of our viewers out there um if you'd like to uh like or subscribe to us we highly uh value your feedback um if you want to leave comments for us all that kind of stuff you can uh 
subscribe to our Substack, or you can uh, rate and review us on any of our social media sites. But most importantly, if you sat there and you thought to yourself that, well, the best ending for Goodwill Hunting was for him to fucking off himself, well, then you can fucking go to hell. Ha, <laughs> ha,